He knows a podcast when he sees one. Too few characters out there flying around like that, saving old girls like me. Lord knows kids like Henry need a podcast. Courageous, self-sacrificing people, setting examples for all of us. Everybody loves a podcast. People line up for them, cheer them, scream their names. And years later, they'll tell how they stood in the rain for hours just to get a glimpse of the one who taught them how to hold on a second longer. I believe there's a podcast in all of us. Taught, keeps us honest, gives us strength, makes us noble, finally allows us to die with pride, even though sometimes we have to be steady and give up the thing we want the most, even our dreams. I think that's great. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. A somber, dramatic, emotional. Exactly. Here's the, here's the tough. I, I was trying to figure out if it was like, oh, do I break off a piece of this? Do I do it even though I've, I've committed to hero being the word I replace with podcast so then I can't end it with the word podcast or fucking whatever. It, but here's the biggest struggle. It's a very fine line I found between Rosemary Harris's Aunt May and uh, Fred Gwynn is the old man in Pet Cemetery. <laughs> I, I was working, and when I was rewatching the movie, I was trying to get it right because she has this very specific inflection. Because it's like a British person doing an American accent. Yeah, so she sounds sort of like a rich lady from Connecticut or something. She's got that kind of like lilt. Right, she's got that lilt, and she's got the sort of like the melody of a, a classically trained British theater actor. And it does end up sounding like, sometimes dead is better. The ground is sour, Peter. Uh, you know, I never thought about that because, like, you know, when they do Aunt May in the the later one, Sally Field and Mar 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 Marissa Tomei are basically both playing her as, like, a white ethnic New Yorker. Like, I think Sally Field's right. doing more of a Jewish thing. Marissa Tomei's doing more of an Italian thing. But they are both playing, like, Queen's broads. Yes. Whereas, like, Rosemary Harris is not really playing a Queen's lady. Like, that is... that I never thought about it. Like... She's just playing a, a classy old lady, which is also good, right? Talked about, right. There was never anything that felt particularly Queens about Aunt May in the classic comics. Just the, the milieu. No, and even just the fact that she always looked like a grandmother. But, like, I just looked her up. She's born in Brooklyn, you know? So, like, you know, it, it, canonically, the comic book character is a, an outer borough New Yorker. Uh, so, but yeah, no, you're right that in the Ditko stuff, she's really just an old lady and Chris weigh in any time. Yeah. I don't, I wasn't, I have so much to say, but I wasn't sure if I should wait for no, it. Just, just swing on in. What do you think about the great aunt May dialect of the Raimi trilogy? Well, first thing I'm going to say, okay. Where to be? Okay. First thing I'm going to say is we're discussing what is probably rightfully called the greatest superhero movie of all time. And in rewatching it, I, I, so many performances and moments where I was going, oh, right, this movie's awesome. This movie's next level. That being said, the Tom Holland Spider-Man series, when Tom Holland appeared in Civil War, I cried. We've talked about this several We've talked times about this. on the podcast. We can talk about it we'll again. It. No, no, we no. can. No, no, we like, but we, it's true. We did our Patreon episode on Civil War. And we are, Griff, you and I, I think, are just both, like, raving about him, right? Like, just how, how sensitive and emotional and right. sweet he is and how it really felt like, oh, my God, this is, like, such a great Peter Parker. Which is funny because now I'm, like, you know, so exhausted by that, that uh, franchise. 
But it's funny, I'm like exhausted by those movies, like that sub-franchise, but every time I am actually in the act of watching him play Par Peter Parker, I'm like, he's so on the money. I love it. There's a lot to discuss here, obviously, about Tobey Maguire, but they nail the emo side, but the humor side of it is pretty lacking. And Tom Howland, they managed to adjust the dials, and I think they have both. They have the, the emo mm -hmm. side, the humor side in a big way, but as someone who's been really jazzed on the recent Spider-Man movies and who really has been enjoying watching them, who grew up obsessed with the Spider-Man comics, like I'm not coming in cold to this. I'm coming in invested. Um, love the, the new franchise. Love Marissa Tomei in the new franchise. One of my main takeaways, I wrote down really just a handful of things that I wanted to make sure we discussed with you guys. So I had to jump in even before my intro because Spider-Man's better with an old, fragile Aunt May. Agreed. 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 Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, it Agreed. just doesn't make sense for Aunt May to feel like someone who's basically got all her shit together because then it's like, where's the sort of like, the Spider-Man feeling of like, it could all fall apart tomorrow, right? You know, that kind of Spider-Man thing of like, oh God, like, you know, one, one false move and like, who knows what's going to happen to my family or my friends or whatever. It's not even like she has to have, like, she shouldn't have all her shit together. Like, I want my Aunt May so old and fragile that if she finds out I'm Spider-Man, she's going to have a heart attack and drop dead. I'm going to kill my <laughs> other parental figure. It's like, one of those things that you're right. Like it, it kind of doesn't make sense for her to be that old and fragile, but yet it always works so much better in the same sense where I'm like, I give you points for trying to root Aunt May in the tri-state area, but it sounds more correct when Rosemary Harris talks like this. This is what I was sort of going to come around to. Exactly. It's like, you know, that is at the end of the day what she's like. Somehow and this is what I always imagined her sounding like when I read the comics. I feel like in the Ditko comics, especially like there's so much like you're saying, Chris, where it's not just that she's physically frail, her constitution. He's just worried about her like getting overexerted or whatever. Like, you and know, I having think Sally like, yeah. Field is a very fragile actor like i think that's a thing she traffics in but i think she she can play right mentally fragile very well she's very good at playing people who are stressed out or yeah i think she played more frazzled that's the thing i think she focused on the frazzled which look by the way when rosemary harris kills it this hard the next two people gotta do something different and they obviously cast very different because they couldn't just do diminishing returns but you do realize just having this aunt may who's like so sweet so kind so fragile is the best who also has maybe figured it out everything in that speech has maybe figured out he's spider-man in the henry speech which is brilliant i'm gonna call out something else because you two are being polite and everybody knows that i'm one of blank checks go-to rabble rousers okay you're, you, I'm, uh, you're gonna rouse so much rabble i'm worried about it i'm worried about your safety get in the first five minutes of this episode, you're both saying that you're known as one of Blank Check's go-to rabble rousers and also felt the need to say, to announce to our listeners, people should know I'm not coming in cold on Spider-Man. You think anyone knows that you're a rabble rouser and thinks that you're just some fucking off the street? Hey, Chris, do you happen to have any takes on Spider-Man? Listen, Marissa Tomei is amazing in those movies. Here's the thing. Marissa Tomei can do anything. If they want, if you want to play her more vulnerable, they could have played her more vulnerable. Where it gets weird in the modern Spider-Man movies, if we're being totally honest, is that she's dating Favreau. That feels yeah, it, very it feels off. It feels, it feels very, very off, forced. and it feels like it takes away. Now, now that being said, major spoiler mm -hmm. for the most recent Spider-Man, which I loved, which brought back McGuire, which we'll talk about. 
the moments when you real and it, I'm, everyone here has seen this, yes? Yeah, you can talk about No Way Home, certainly. Do not worry about that. The moments when you realize she's been hit by the glider, yeah. and you realize we've all always thought they didn't tell the origin with Uncle Ben, because why would they beat that horse? Why do right. And then again, you, right, yeah. you start to realize, oh no, this is a multiverse where that hasn't happened yet, and it's happening now in front of us without me. It got me bad. I started crying before how, like, Knowing the backstory of, of Spider, as soon as she said "great power, great responsibility," I started tearing up, and I realized how it hadn't hit Hallie yet what was happening. And I'm going, "Oh!" And and Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are watching it from my perspective of, "Oh, we know what he's about to go." And yeah, like, yeah, they got me. Smart writing. Yeah, and I think she kills that scene also. Yeah, I, I, crushes. She's Marissa Tomei. Like, you know, there's a reason my cousin Vinny is what it is, and this is a yeah. podcast where I'm allowed to say that sentence and not feel. Like an asshole. But no, of yeah. course not. Yeah. You're just speaking the truth. Yeah. Her being like young and hip and and dating Favreau, being together enough to be out on the dating scene and self-sufficient is like, no, no, no. Her whole life is it, it should be like like Aunt May, Rosemary Harris crushes it in the sense of like it should be watching like a sick mouse try to walk down a tightrope in a wind tunnel. Like that's how fragile Perfectly she Perfectly said. You know? here's the thing you know what i think it is partly it's like you're making for one the raimi series is there and that kind of attempted to uh which we'll talk about capture the classic spider-man feel let's update it let's not have this female mentor character be the most comically cosmically old fucking mr burns ass lady ever let's have her be independent you know and this is true in the comic the, the current spider-man comics right you know aunt may runs uh, you know a social uh, outreach kind of thing right like she works helping the homeless like she's she's together she's cool she's like with it and i think there was also there was the behavioral thing of just like what Aunt May in the original comics, if you do the math, is supposed to be like 50, but with fucking city miles on her in the 60s and whatever. And they're like, a woman in her 50s looks like Marissa Tomei now. Like, you have to update the cultural sure. standard. So I, I get that. You know, I, I get it. But Trope wise and archetype wise, in a rewatch of Spider Man 2, though, to me, it's the thing that, and some of this is also rosemary harris right some of it is also just you can't fuck yeah, with great that that speech is a lot there's a lot of fat to chew on in that henry speech and she makes that look like she's just a queen's backyard tossing that away and i wrote it down she literally yeah, said that was no griffin newman delivery she fucking made it work she at one point says the words about spider-man that he gives us strength keeps us noble and allows us to die with pride and makes that feel like she's just in a that backyard packing work. up her garage look and, like and she's and rosemary you, like chris what you are talking about is why this movie is so good because yeah. yes you know it has that radical sincerity that like just super intense like you know uh purple dialogue that could be so bad or so glaring or just clang on your ears and sometimes is even in this movie let's i want i not sure how i feel about that, that but we can talk about that before we do can i just say something david i'm holding back and I think you could feel it. And I think any listeners who heard me on the show before felt it. I referred to myself as a blank check rabble rouser. And David, you immediately said, oh, no, something like mm. that. Mm. So you're nervous, mm. too. I did write a letter. I didn't want to get emotional when I read it. So I did send it to you, David. Is there any way you could just read the letter before we get in? Because I, I got to be able to get to the hot takes without walking on landmines here and, and eggshells. Wow. 
So is there any way you could just read this letter? Oh my God. All right. Here we go. All right. Okay. I've opened the letter. I'm going to read this. I'm not going to read it in a Rosemary Harris voice, but I will read it aloud. Now, every time a letter has been sent in pre-record, has been handed in or sent in, it's been a historic moment, not to set the expectations too high, but the importance of, of giving a pre-record letter to a host or producer at the beginning of an episode, it carries a lot of weight in the blank check lore. Okay. Here we go. All right. To whom it may concern, Colin. Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to formally apologize for my behavior the last time I appeared on Blank Check, and more pressingly, for my online interactions with a number of fans of the show afterwards. I never expected that my innocent opinion, to reiterate my subjective opinion, that I enjoyed Rise of Skywalker more than The Last Jedi, would set off a firestorm. I, real I recognize I was a steamrollery jabberjaws on that episode. The episode, by the way, it's, it's our Patreon Marvel performance review episode yeah. uh, from 2019, the end of 2019. Just so everyone knows, my wife had recently birthed our first child and Rise was the first movie I saw in the theater after many months hiatus. Even more importantly, that taping was one of the first times I broke out of baby world and had a grown-up conversation post the birth of my son. I remember that, Chris. You were really, you had not hung out with a lot of adults. You were raw. I mean, we're barely adults, but yes. Uh, this combined with my manic tendencies made me hit the gas hard in that moment, and I do apologize. <laughs> Even more importantly, it's been made clear my behavior in the blanky subreddit, a uh, 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 hive of scum and villainy, obviously, yeah, yes. was over the line. That was you. Uh, that was not me. You edited that. Was, I, that was, I said that, that was the hive of scum and villainy part. Sorry, I'm editorializing. I was very overwhelmed to see the level of anger my last Jedi opinions brought about, and I had too much fun interacting with people in their mentions. In their responses, sorry. Uh, in my mind, I was playing a professional wrestling heel, Yorati Piper, Jake the Snake, Million Dollar Man. It was quickly explained to me I was coming off more, much more simply, as a dick. This incident was one of the few that has led me to delete my Reddit account. I've realized wow. in my older and wiser years that Reddit might just be the worst site on the internet, and that's saying a lot. Problem is, everyone who posts on it thinks they're funny, and none of them are funny or have a sense of humor. Seriously, I invite you to take a deep breath and imagine attending a real-life party only attended by people who actively post on Reddit. Can you imagine? What a living nightmare. Seriously, you throw your pen off the balcony and actively seek out foods you're allergic to in an effort to quite a quick death. Quick death. You could just throw yourself off the balcony, Chris. No, you throw the EpiPen that. off the balcony. I know, that's you what you're saying. You're, you're saying throw the EpiPen off the balcony and try and eat a pistachio or something. I, I get exactly. it. But like. David Sims has made it clear he does not want this episode to devolve into endless Star Wars talk. And I respect him enough to obey this wish. <laughs> While all the boys have denied it, I think I did get put in the blank check penalty box after my behavior last time around, and I don't want to stress anyone out. Uh, so in case you're wondering, of course I have some strong opinions on The Mandalorian. Of course I'm baffled that Book of Boba Fett turned him into someone seeking out what was a county-level bureaucratic position. Yes, <laughs> he essentially tries to be a sheriff of a town. Very strange. Didn't hate it. Is your editor, some did, your editor. This is your editor. That's me talking. That's me talking. Yeah. Sorry. Back to Gus. And of course, once it dovetailed into being a simple Mandalorian crossover, I found it strangely to be an extremely underrated Star Wars property. Of course, I've watched the Obi Wan trailer. I will not be airing out my opinions on it in this time, out of my respect, David Sims. Do I also wish we had a breathing room to talk about how Grant Morrison's opinion on Superman being turned evil is an unnecessary and overdone trope matchup pretty seamlessly with my opinion that Star Wars is our societal fairy tale and it's okay to let it just be a fairy tale and I feel very similarly to Last Jedi about how it to how Grant Morrison feels about Superman and all of you seem to really love Grant Super Morrison's take and I find that shall we say italics interesting of course I do <laughs> but Sim says we don't that being said, keep in mind my manic Star Wars nonsense is what got us 
all the Babu Frick stuff, the rant about General Grievous and give me that fisto. But apparently in David's mind, it's worth throwing out all those babies with the bathwater. David hates babies, I guess. Sincerely, Chris Gethard. Okay. I'd like to respond personally. Wow. Okay. Okay. Because I do feel like I am the target of this letter and I'm not, I'm not offended. No, that was an apology. That was an apology. No, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not offended. I'm not offended. I'm just it saying. An apology. It was an apology with some fun. I know I can be a little bit of the traffic cop. What? For the blank check traffic cop. I know what? that. Okay. I just, Geth and Griff and I have, you know, we text and we were texting about Boba Fett, right? You know, we were texting about whatever the Star Wars thing was. And Geth was doing the whole, well, you know, we got to do like an hour of Star Wars on the next episode. And Griff was like, yeah, more, more. You know, Griff loves yeah. to, to, loves to, to, you know, eat that up, right? You know, fan, no, the flames. fan the flames. Yes. And I was just like, guys, it's Spider-Man 2. It's a, it's it's a very consequential film. It is uh, probably my favorite Sam Raimi film. I don't know if you agree, Griffin. I know we can get to the final rankings when we get to the final rankings, but, you know, there's an argument. You don't have to defend yourself. I wrote a letter saying I get it and I agree with you. At the, but I, I want to actually just talk about <laughs> the Patreon episode a little bit. And just for a second, just, I just want to like kind of reassure you a little bit. Okay. I think that episode is really funny. Yeah, I did too. I, I personally think there's sort of both you're, you're, like you said, you're kind of just intense, like I'm with people, you know, thing, which I having now had a kid, I remember that feeling too, where you're after the first few insane months kind of entering back out of the world. I remember I would, I would like take walks with people because it was still like COVID-y times. Not that it's not, but you know what I mean? And I would like, you know, I would chat with them. And then like, after I saw them, I would send a text being like, I'm sorry if I was like too intense. Having a kid is weird and it makes you weird. And imagine if your first, like, honestly, your first real adult conversation about a movie after you had your kid, David, was recorded. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Like, That's I would, what exactly. I would feel embarrassed seeing people that I know very well who love me and would text being like, if I just was kind of a fire hose just then with the, with the kind of like constant, like, this is what I think, you know, like, I'm sorry. And they would, of course, always be like, you're fine. What are you talking about? You know, don't worry about it. But. Right, we were recording it, and I think you were maybe not totally aware that discussion of The Last Jedi had become the most charged topic on the internet. Had no stop. idea. Had right. no idea. You, you didn't, like, that it was a discourse nightmare. Like, they had just been festering for two years. Beyond that, I think, to your credit, and largely because you were such a, a new father, you had stayed pretty out of the uh, Rise of Skywalker echo chamber like you were entering into it just being like i i think assuming we all agreed yeah i was a little shocked that everybody wasn't like this movie is visually stunning and that's carrying it to a really good crescendo i didn't know about all this other stuff um but i do apologize that i came off as a dick to your fans on reddit i was having a lot of fun with it and then actually my friend bryson who planets uh, planet scum if there's any crossovers no he texted me it was like was like, hey, like friends of mine on Reddit are telling me you have to chill out. And I was like, oh, that's <laughs> that's weird. But do I want to sit here? Do I want to sit here and, t and talk about how if you view the Mandalorian as the uncanny X-Men and Boba Fett as something akin to X-Factor or Excalibur, that it actually works so well if you just have that perspective? Do I want? Yeah, I'd love to spend 20 minutes on that, but we don't have the time. We got to talk Spider-Man I, I think that's a good take. I think that's a good take. I also just want to say, at the same time that Bryson was texting you and saying you need to chill out, you were texting us and going, I'm fucking loving this. 
It was so fun. That's what got me in the doghouse. That's yeah. Why I got- at, right at the the first couple of days, you were like, "I'm mixing it up in there." Yeah, yeah. like what you know, we're having fun, right? That's why I got put in blank check jail. That's you did. Why I okay. back you, on the you show did. this long. I did. I it's crib, fine. I, uh, yeah. There's clearly. I can see. I'm looking at Ben's face now, and I'm watching the face no, of Mick, here's, who was on an answer. email chain. Who was <laughs> on an email shrug. chain. Here's the honest answer. The honest answer is. Uh, I think there's a thing we are sometimes guilty of where if we're like, fuck, this is a great episode. This person on this is such a fucking great episode. And we right. pin that in our mind. We'll like, we'll wait too long to have someone back on because in our minds we're waiting for that. No, see, what happened is I was gleefully texting you that I was tormenting your no, fans wrong. on Reddit. And I was coming off very poorly, and it took me too long to realize. And you said Gethard needs to go be Abs- in the like, check jail no, for a while, true. and I should be. True. The reality is that uh, Doctor Strange was pushed back a number of times because of the novel coronavirus. Yeah, and also possibly insane Marvel reshoots. Well, both, both. Also, but, but though, like, yeah. How cool was it to? One of my main takeaways from Multiverse of Madness, right yeah. out of the gate. How cool was it to see Sam Raimi's Marvel New York come back to life? I mean, it felt like it was it. on. It felt like he was shooting it on the set of Spider Man Two, and it yeah. felt so good nostalgically. And and then and the two Ditko properties, they let Sam Raimi put this visual. I know. Stamp it, on. Is, I know. it is funny that he's done both Dick, both major Ditko characters. It's it's true. Um, no, we pinned in our mind very early on. I think we said like, if we if we do Raimi. Geth, you got to do Spider-Man 2. And then Raimi kept on getting pushed further and further. And it was our failing to not think to throw any other possible episodes at you in the meantime. Everybody knows that I'm not a domesticated dog. I'm a feral animal out there in the woods. This is why, this is why the Chris Gethard show is never destined to live forever on cable, right? So when you put a wolf on your fucking microphone, <laughs> the wolf's going to howl. And people don't want to hear that howl too often because it's loud and it scares them. So if you need to go and say, we need some domesticated dogs, we can't have the wolves running through here so much. So I get it. Okay. I'm just a wolf howling at the moon. And and sometimes Reddit wants to get mad at that. Well, I don't need to be on Reddit. Reddit's a fucking nightmare full of, what was the line I said? People who think they're funny and none of them even have a sense of humor. I think that that's fairly accurate. And to be fair, your fan base is actually one of the better ones on Reddit, but I've been around Reddit enough to know. I mean, my only problem, and yeah, Reddit is one of those things where it's like there's, you know, obviously there's lots of pleasant people on Reddit and then there's mm-hmm. some unpleasant people. And I do think sometimes Reddit, you know, can encourage unpleasantness, but I do think our Reddit tends to be seen as a, a fairly chill one, which is nice. I appreciate that. But, you know. And, and actually very smart people. Dealing with people who have opinions on comedy, which is the larger sphere I, I mm, deal with. Mm. Like comedy Reddit is a fucking nightmare. nightmare. That was the big reason uh, I had to get out. Shocked to learn this. People online talking about comedy in 2022? Comedy is the most annoying. Comedy is the most annoying thing in all of pop culture, isn't it? It is. It is. It's it, the it most annoying be, thing. Be. And somehow getting more annoying by the day. And just the fucking bullies dominate one end and self-righteousness dominates another and... All the discourse gets guided by fucking. Don't get me start. I could start naming. Uh, names. We're not going to get you. Look, and, and we can. Uh, I just. I'm sad for you that you deleted Reddit just because that means you can't look at the guy who looks like Sebastian Stan, the 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 dick guy. The just guy call him Bucky. Guy. Yeah, just yeah. Call him he, Bucky. It's a, uh, slash you slash nude, just call me nude Bucky. pictures with an erect penis. Right. Yeah, but looks a lot like Bucky. Oh, beyond nude pictures. Oh, he he posts active pictures of him having threesomes and real hardcore sex stuff 
And he looks so much like Bucky that you will not be able to enjoy the Winter Soldier anymore. Look, this is a, a podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. <laughs> I'm David. <laughs> and I have COVID. This is another wrinkle we're going to weave into this episode. It's a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers. And they're given a series of blank checks, make whatever crazy passion products they want. Sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce, baby. And this is a mini series on the films of Sam Raimi. It's called Podcast Me to Hell. Today we're talking about... What, yes, I think, David, it's fair to say is at least in the argument for his best film. But I mm -hmm. think more importantly, all of us agree. Uh, and I, I think now it's become a slightly more contentious belief to hold is, is the great American superhero movie. I feel like this was the default answer for a while. And I think there's been a generational shift now. Yeah, this is this movie's kind of an antique to a younger generation, I assume. Right. I don't know. Yeah, uh, but I do think it is still kind of the high watermark for making a studio-friendly franchise comic book picture that feels, like, really artistic and, you know, genuine and wonderful. And, and I, I, it is my favorite. I've seen it so many times. I do love Spider-Man 2. You know, I don't... What's its competition grip, do you think, like, now? Like, like Logan, what, what would... Logan raised the bar. We both like Logan less than you do. I don't I don't dislike Logan. You know, I've only seen it once. Uh, yeah, I should same. watch it again. Um But Logan's also not like a um It's very uncomic booky, like, you know, yeah. And it's also not like a canon movie. Like they actively right. set it in its So it's own... got that going. You know, whereas I'm and I am a big fan of the Wolverine, and I think Griffin agrees with me yeah. on that. It's not a perfect movie or by any means. But I like and of it course, a lot. Yeah. I love, you know. Jackman as Wolverine. I I I think that if you're gonna say Spider-Man Two is high, you know, I do think Jackman kind of holds the throne of like comic book performer, right? Would that would would that make? Can we give him that? Thor Ragnarok is pretty perfect. If you ask this is me. another thing you like Ragnarok more. Wow, than David is giving for anybody since this is an audio medium. I have to say. David Sims just gave me what can only be described as the most dismissive hand motion. <laughs> I the gave you most the most actively off. disrespectful. The buzz off. Look, I think people on this podcast know I am not like I don't mind that movie. I think it's fun. Yeah. Um, but I do. I look. There's it's coming out this year. Thor four, right? Taika, Thor. Taika Thor two is coming out. Oh, this year. with the fucking God Butcher with Gore the God Butcher. Yeah. Who uh, who who I, who looks fun? I like I like who the look of him. Have and you I, read I, Jason Aaron? Have you read the Jason Aaron stuff with God? Have you read the Gore the God Butcher stuff? I have. I love <laughs> Jason Aaron's Thor run. It's so good. I also think fucking Christian Bale's decision to play that totally fucking straight. Like, to play that, like, Shakespeare against the Tyke of it all, I think is a really fucking good choice. Well, look, Griffin, have you read these comic books? Yes. The, so we can all say, and for anybody who wants spoiler-free Thor, you're going to want to skip ahead 30 seconds. The fact that they made that trailer so fun, but we all know it's God Butcher and Christian Bale's playing it like that, and those yeah. comics are bleak. Like, yeah. they're setting up Marvel fans. They're making, they're trying to make kids, kids are about to cry like fucking Bambi's mom getting shot. Like that trailer is making this movie look like a party with Thor. And these movies, that villain is bleak. And I love that they're about to pull the rug out from under everybody on Thor. Agreed. David, what were you about to say? I'm just wondering if the worm is going to turn, if there's going to be maybe some Taika fatigue. Obviously, uh, Jojo Rabbit was a pretty divisive movie. Uh, there's just a lot of Taika out there. Taika's on the poster. He's, on, he's billed. On the poster yeah. of that movie? Yep. Did you know that? 
I'm just wondering if there'll be some moment where people are like, you know what? This tone is starting to grate. Maybe not. Maybe I'm totally wrong. I have no idea. I would not be surprised if that moment comes at some point, but I don't expect it will be this movie. I got a big question about if this is the best one ever. I got sure. a big question. Yeah. And, it, and it, refers, yeah. it, it ties right into this generation gap. Yeah. When Spider-Man 2 came out, a lot of people were wondering if Spider-Man 1 was a fluke. Sure. That was still a fair thing to say. Because we were not too far away from the collective memory of Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of Danny DeVito as the Penguin. We were not too far away from the collective memory of these things. Now, Are you an anti-DeVito as the Penguin? I'm just saying it was what it was. Comic book movies didn't have a good reputation. Right? We, the Schumacher Batman was fresh yeah. in our mind. Sure. X-Men... X2 had set the bar and then Spider-Man really raised it. The X2 is in between Spider-Man 1 and 2. So it's it's first X-Men, Spider-Man, X2, Spider-Man. And, and I think X-Men 2 had shown, yeah, you can build on these and make a cool sequel. Like that was a very successful sequel. Yeah. But the idea of Marvel putting out good movies, like DC, it was known. Okay, every few years you're, you, right. you're, you're going to get a Christopher Reeves Batman every once in a while. You're going to... Or Superman, you're going to get a Michael Keaton Batman every once in a while. But yeah. Marvel, it was hilariously bad. A company that had been bankrupt within recent memory, bad. And we're all sitting here tenuous. Now it comes out, and it's an incredible movie. And I wrote down some names right here where you just, you look at it, you go, Molina? Of course. I'm On this rewatch, I'm going, Kirsten Dunst. Mm-hmm. Kind of blows me away more than I remembered. Like... It's a really good performance. Dude, Rosemary Harris, we've talked about it. J. Jonah Jameson, mm-hmm. they brought him back for a reason, cool. right? Yeah. I'm mm-hmm. even going on this. I'm going Elizabeth Banks as Betty Britt. Has guy, a lot of fun in this one. The guy Bill who played Nunn. Radio Rahim as Robbie Robertson. Yep. Bill yep. Nunn. Bill Nunn. Perhaps the, great. the greatest performance in this movie is Phil Lamar as a non-speaking person <laughs> on the train. The great Phil Lamar. <laughs> He is great. He Perhaps is great. You know what? Probably the, the Kid Fisto of Spider-Man 2 is that if you watch, when Spider-Man's about to fall off the front of that subway car, one of the people who leans out and catches him is a silent Phil Lamar. Marvin. Phil Lamar. I think Dan Hicks, Chloe Dykstra. There's a lot of folks in that train car, and they do all nail it. Here's the big two. And I got to bring this up. One discussion that needs to be had based off of this movie is James Franco's performance needs to be discussed. Agreed. Mm. Agreed. And generationally, are fans who are used to where Marvel has set the bar now going to cut Tobey Maguire as much slack as we are considering that we first consumed Marvel movies when they were disappointing and terrible? Which is not to say that Tobey Maguire's performance is bad, but I think that the overall mandated take of the character puts a lot of emotion on him and it's always been kind of made fun of and it's cartoonish upon a modern rewatch. Is Franco good and is Maguire bad? I think Franco is good, but I think it's a very, very risky performance. He is walking an incredibly fine line. I think we can open up a whole Franco sidebar because we at this point have recorded and released our Spider-Man 1 episode, but have also recorded our Spider-Man 3 episode. And David has said throughout this series, because we've also recorded our Oz the Great and Powerful episode, mm-hmm. that feast aside from his, yes, he's a feast or famine actor. There's almost no in-between space with Franco. 
With him, I'm either right, very dialed into what he's doing, or he seems completely bored and disconnected from the work, the the material, his role, whatever. Yeah. And and with few examples, the Francos I defend are the big swings. There are a couple of times I think he's given honest, measured, realistic performances, but I think he's usually better when he's taking a big swing. And and this is a this is a big swing performance. He's making big swings in every scene. Now, even within this movie, like there's the, some of the moments where he's calling Peter his hey, brother and he's playing it drunk and causing a scene where I'm like, damn, this is good. And then there's things like Defoe coming back at the end and going, avenge me, and him going, no! And you're like, that's the best take. That's the take they used. There were other takes. I'll say this about that particular moment that you're referring to. Defoe is so phenomenal screaming avenge me that maybe it's just absolutely... It's just a tough thing for him to be next to, you know, like, you know, because Defoe is just the master of unhinged, yeah. you know, four color comic book from the 1960s acting. Yeah. Right. Not not just a reverse Kuleshev effect going on in the construction of the film, but also if you're on set witnessing Defoe throwing fastballs at your head, you might fucking like you might right. shrink might a little be tough. bit. And again. And again, I'm nitpicking. I started off by saying that I loved this movie when it came out and I rewatched it and was like overwhelmed with how much I still love it. I'm, I'm nitpicking here. But the, again, I'll just reiterate, I don't want to have to keep up with Defoe. You put me on a set with someone of that caliber, I don't want to have to keep up with Defoe, but James Franco was tasked with that. That's the best take is the one that they use. <laughs> That's the best take. McGuire, let's, let's just swivel to McGuire. I, yeah. for a long time, kind of had the take you're talking about Get. Where I was like, yeah, it's a very sensitive and interesting performance, but it didn't really have the jokiness I want from Spider-Man. I think we talked about this a little on the first Spider-Man episode, right, Chris? Sure. Like, we, yeah. we touched yes. on this. Yeah. You know, and so as like a comic book nerd, I was like, I miss that. You know, Spider-Man's supposed to be motor mouth, and that's not really there. And because McGuire had such a weird career after this, where it's not like he never gave a good performance again. He was such an interesting performer before Spider-Man, right? He was such uh -huh. an exciting young actor. Like Ice Storm, Pleasantville, uh, even Cider House Rules, Ride with the Devil, Wonder Boys. You were just like, wow, this guy is like so exciting. And then after this, it's he's done Seabiscuit in between these two. It's The Good German, which is a bizarre performance. Uh -huh. uh, it's Brothers. It's The Great Gatsby. It's pawn sacrifice that's like basically all of his major roles after this so like i think the bloom came off the the the, the mcguire role rose a little bit right and you were kind of like was he did he turn out to be a bit of a flop like and then there's also there's also all the tabloid stories where you're reading about how he's out there like yeah and he's supposed to be kind of a intense jerk right trolling for strange picking up dicaprio's leftovers and like and there there's all that new rat pack bragginess that was very weird and dark let's and, not call it the new rat pack let's call it the pussy posse they have right? to wear that with you shame said, you said yeah. it um and then i saw him in no way home and his performance in no way home you're like right this was the mcguire performance and he's doing it like that's interesting you go back to these movies and you're like, yeah, this is a very specifically calibrated performance. I really like it. I'm a big fan. I like it. Okay. Can I make my Maguire defense? Of course. I, I, I guess I don't like the Holland Spider-Man movies as much as you do, but I do agree with you that Tom Holland is like the perfect Spider-Man to a degree that it, it feels bizarre. Like it feels like he was constructed in a lab 
only to be able to fill every single tenant of that character simultaneously to a degree that I think we will see may haunt his career. Like something like Uncharted now has to be what if Nathan Drake was Spider-Man because he just kind of is Spider-Man, right? That feels like it, it, it is his movie star persona. Whereas this is very much applying this sensitive indie drama leading man, you know, smart young guy, Tobey Maguire persona that had been developed over the 90s to Spider-Man, right? He's loaning that to these movies. He's bringing Toby to the movies, whereas like Holland has perhaps just merged with Peter Parker at this point and might never be able to age out of it. Who knows? Yeah, the tough thing with Holland, right, is when you see him in something not Spider-Man, you're like, oh, he can't shake this performance. He's just like this all the time. Right, right, or, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. Um, but but I think, uh, it, it, especially now that we're in this zone where, like, nothing is sacred anymore, right? If, a, if an adaptation doesn't work, it's going to be rebooted immediately. If a casting doesn't work, they'll reset it. Like, none of these things have the preciousness of what you're talking about, Geth, when, like, a Spider-Man one comes out and you're just like, if they fuck this up, we're never going to get any of these movies again. Or if Spider-Man two fucks up, you're like, even still the goodwill of Spider-Man one will be eradicated immediately. All this will go back on the shelf. And we've talked about, we've been doing like the Batman movies on Patreon and even just how much less critical I am of the Zack Snyder DC movies now, because even at that time I was like, is Snyder going to get to be the only guy who gets to tell character stories with these characters for a decade? for an entire revolution, a cycle, before anyone else gets their hands on it. And it's like, no, none of this is precious anymore. There's seven Batmans at the same time. None of this fucking matters, right? But I do think when you look at, like, arcs of comic book series, the runs, the eras, characters morph and they mutate over time and different artists and different writers, they push and pull and they, certain creators intensify certain aspects of the personality and sidetrack other aspects of the personality, and the character adapts to the times and whatever. So when you're reading a comic book of a character, very rarely does it have to fill every single thing that character has represented over 75 years. But when you're making a movie of that character, you're like, I want you to put everything this character has ever been to me into one characterization and one performance, you know? And I think there's that thing where it's like Keaton's Batman was very different from Adam West, was very different from Christian Bale's, from Pattinson's, from Affleck's. All of them, I think, are good, but all of them were able to focus on different slivers and like adjust the knobs in such a way. And there's a thing I saw Laura Ziskin say in like a behind the scenes thing I watched for this movie, where she was like, the terror for us in making this movie was that everyone, perhaps she's generalizing, but so many people, millions and millions and millions of people, had a Spider-Man movie in their head they had always wanted to see. And there's no way we can make everyone's dream Spider-Man movie. But we really trusted in the movie that Sam Raimi had in his head and hoped that that overlapped with enough other people's movies. And for Sam Raimi, clearly, the moodiness of Spider-Man, the sort of Archie comics, earnest vulnerability, the bleeding like sort of heart on its sleeve sort of thing, was the important thing. And I think Tobey Maguire is playing that aspect of Spider-Man perfectly, which is exactly what he's asked to do. I think you can ding him for not fulfilling other aspects of the character in a broader sense. It's not about him. It's not about him. Yeah, but I think this. I think he's giving the perfect performance for this movie and for this movie's interpretation of Spider-Man, and especially because other guys have now come along and been able to hit the other things. 
I take all of that pressure off of him where I'm like, I don't need him to be quit because I've seen other people do quit be well. See, here's where, because I agree with what you're saying. And here's where, and, and I'll say this, Tommy, Toby McGuire, really, he nailed what he was asked to do. I could not do what he did. His reaction to Rosemary Harris's speech is incredible. When, I mean, the underrated, because it's right before the speech, the importance of the, hey, you want some chocolate cake? Oh. The healing, mm-hmm. right? The healing. Mm-hmm. This Maybe other... the single best scene in the entire film. In a quiet argument. A very important scene. Very Yeah, important and scene. him realizing like, oh, other, other girls might be interested in me if I'm not so, like, Maybe I can let Mary Jane go for her safety and recognize that that's not going to end the world. Maybe I can find the balance in things in my life and realize, it, you know, he's nailing and his reactions to things nail it. But my problem is that you ask anybody who's read any issue of Spider-Man or watched any Spider-Man cartoons mm-hmm. from the 60s through the 80s, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. If I'm being very, very nitpicky, which part is part of what we do here on the show, right? Spider-Man tells jokes is top two or three things that any casual fan would know and list about what they like about the character. He's funny. He's a wise ass. Like he fights Electro and he makes dumb puns about how electric things are like, and, and then Sam Raimi is funny as fuck. Let's keep that in mind. In this movie, you have things like when, uh, when, when Mary Jane jilts him at the altar, you cut and you give the fucking great line to, uh, J. Jonah Jameson, where Simmons gets to go call the caterer, tell him not to open that caviar. And his wife, his wife gives her the like nails this, like, he, and and he does the same thing even in Multiverse of Madness, right? Like Bruce Campbell's gonna keep punching himself in the face. Sam Raimi knows how to deliver like a modern vaudeville, raise your eyebrow real high, something physical. So within this movie, Raimi is very funny. We all know that Spider-Man is a funnier character than this is, and that's a fundamental tenet of Spider-Man. So it feels like such an intentional choice to leave it out, and therefore a missed opportunity, where, again, I do still believe this is the best superhero film of all time, and I care. But if we're going to nitpick about why a modern generation might not see it the way we do, I think we were all willing to take a deep breath and go, ah, Weird that Spider-Man doesn't have any jokes in a movie that is pretty funny, but I don't know if younger I don't know if the younger generation is going to be willing to put up with it now that the bar has been been raised. I think he's funny, but I think he's funny in his reactions to things. He's funny like, in an odd sort of a quiet way. Yeah, he's funny in like a Buster Keaton way, where it's this weird disconnect. I mean, there's another thing Raimi said in one of these behind the scenes things where he's like, the thing that's always funniest to me is no one else in the movie understanding that he's the star of the picture. And that's a great take. Great take, right? And that's I, when I, re- I actually was rewatching it in person. I finished this morning the subway scene. Yeah. Which to me, might be, that might be the most iconic, right? That and the Rosemary yeah. Harris. But this, that's like the iconic, like when it shows up in like film reels of like, hey, the best of the decade, like that mm-hmm. scene. One of the most amazing things about that is it's such a remarkable line in the sand where in a movie this big where they're reminding you, he ain't Superman, everybody. This is yeah. hard for him. Yeah. He can't just stop a speeding train. One of those webs snaps right at the tail end and you're like, oh, he might not make it. Like they do such a good job of showing exactly what you're showing. And Raimi's so in touch with that of like nobody realizes he's the star. He's not Superman. He gets shitted on by life. And all that stuff's real, but would it kill them 
to have him just have one line that's like, Doc, you got eight arms and not one of them can give you a better haircut? Like, I can write, that's, that's a Spider-Man style joke that I can just spitball right now. He can't have a handful of those. I look, I, I agree with you. And it's like the biggest failing of the first Spider-Man is the one time they give him a quip like that. It's homophobic. Like, it's annoying that the one time Spider-Man slings Did, did your a wife joke, make it for you thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He says husband. Don't rewrite it husband. to be sorry. kinder husband. to the what joke. Am I, I'm yeah. sorry. No, I'm just zoned. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm tired. Yeah. I'm going to throw out another hot take then. I'm going to throw out another hot take. If you want to focus back up on Spider-Man 2, I'm just going to buckle the fuck up because you. I don't know how you'll feel about this. Can I finish my thought before this in response to your sure. last hot take? Sure. There's the Raimi through line in all these movies where he loves testing his characters, right? And he loves torturing yes. them. And then there's yeah, the putting additional... Putting them in the box, shaking it up. Right, right. And I think he likes to test characters' moralities and very often they they succumb, Right. And, and Spider-Man is his unwavering figure. And in a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, he was talking about that he felt like a moral responsibility in understanding how many kids were going to see this movie. There's this thing he said that's really interesting where he's like, you put this costume up on screen and you like apply the world's most expensive special effects to having him swing through the city and you have Danny Elfman's horns blaring. And immediately the character becomes iconic and we imprint upon it and we care about it and we defer to it. And in a way that is unfair that we haven't even earned. So my challenge in making these movies is to earn what we're being given for free. Because with most movies, you have to work to make an audience care about your character, or be impressed by them or get excited by them. And with Spider-Man and these elements we have at play and the craftspeople and the cast and whatever, it's just like... The iconography is there. You you have it in the tank, right? And he talked a lot about, like, I really feel like we have responsibility to provide a strong moral center to these films because these are movies that could be seen by children, all this sort of stuff. And unlike someone like Ash from Army of Darkness, like, Spider-Man is the guy where, like, the bad shit happens to him and he remains resolute. And this whole movie is the the testing, right, of, like, his his morals and his priorities and all that sort of shit. The additional layer to this is that Raimi loves fucking with his actors. Right. And I think his relationship to Hobie Maguire was weirdly similar to his relationship with Bruce Campbell, where he just personally, in a somewhat sadistic way, finds it so much funnier to fuck with Tobey Maguire than to let Tobey Maguire have the upper hand. I do agree with you that there's a universe in which he could have like threaded the ash needle where you can have the guy throw out quippy one liners and still somehow get embarrassed. But I do think his comedic priorities are like, you know, the universe is going to fuck with Spider-Man and I'm going to fuck with Toby and I want to make him look as silly on screen as possible. Yeah, let, let, me, let me say something because I agree with you. Um, I Basically, I, I know what you mean, Geth, and I know that that's part of the Spider-Man thing and that is, it, you're, you're, you're right. You could throw in a few lines and they, there's like one line at the bank, like, you know, he, they try it a little bit, but not really. But this movie has total control of tone and mm-hmm. it's picked a tone and it goes with it. And that is something that is so rare, especially now in these Marvel superhero movies that I largely enjoy watching, but cannot help but undermine themselves with self-aware humor yes. and dorky yes. quips all the fucking time to the point that I'm like, take yourself seriously. And it's the, the Taika Waititi, Oscar winner, guy I appreciate a lot who's made a lot of good movies. It's my whole problem with Ragnarok where I'm like, if we don't have any respect for this material, I don't know how much fun I can have with this. Like, because like, that's the whole thing where it's like, Thor's so silly. And I'm like, Okay, why'd you make a Thor movie? Like, what the fuck? 
And now he's like, I'm going to make another one. Fuck you, Thor. You're dumb. The guy with a hammer he thinks he's so smart. And I'm like, you know, at a certain point, I want a little majesty from this. It's about a goddamn lightning god. You know, like, why do I need it to be him being like, fart? You know, and I'm like, come on. This episode's uh, anyway. somehow even hotter than I thought it was going to be. Get. I, um, well, I just want to say that I agree. Yeah. Um, I do think that the self-referential MCU jokes have become too much. I like Thor um, going there because I also know some of my favorite Thors. Like, I never liked Thor growing up, but when you read the Frog Thor storyline, which treats him with yeah. where you start to go, oh, when creators treat Thor, blah, blah, blah. When creators treat Thor, understanding, this is a Norse god. This is insane that we're even making this. That's funny. I like, now, it's the same type of joke spread throughout every single movie, and I agree it's too much. Now, I would like to agree Griff. And it sounds like there's been quotes. And I'd like to give benefit of the doubt that Sam Raimi had to make some choices and that there was a lot of thought put into the moral compass and the responsibility of making a Spider-Man movie, understanding what Spider-Man represents me. I'd like to think that all of that is the end-all be-all of it. It's hard for me to not be a little cynical and think that there was some dickhead at Sony who had control over money who read a script at one point and went, why is Spider-Man making jokes? He's the hero. Superman doesn't make jokes. Like, it's hard for Maybe. me. Maybe. We can talk about the, the cynic. The cynic in me feels like there's so much humor in the rest. Of, why give so many great jokes to other characters? Mm. It feels intentional that they were stripped from Spider-Man, which feels to me like at some point, Sam Raimi must have banged his head against a wall and just gone. They really don't fucking get it. Okay. Look, Everybody else can look, get the jokes. Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man makes a lot more jokes. They tried, they clearly took that note from the fans and tried it, right? I'm not wrong, right, Griff? Right. Are we also feeling so good for Garfield right now? I mean... It, I, we're all thrilled for him, yes. I feel like, right? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. nice, nice job getting a little dignity back from that franchise, like, or that, those, that performance, but right? But it is that weird thing where you watch those two Garfield movies, uh, uh, The Amazing Spider-Man and Spider-Man Tale of Two Kitties, and... <laughs> Damn it, I was gonna make that... The two Garfield movies, he's really fucking quippy, and I know that those two movies, like, Mark Webb bragged about, like, we brought in a bunch of stand-ups, and we had a fucking punch-up room for every fight scene, and we were like, what are the funniest things Spider-Man can say? And, like, none of it works for me. Like, there are scenes where he comes off weirdly mean. There are scenes where he comes off glib and condescending. And I don't put the blame on Garfield, but that, like, movie cannot find the tone in which he can fuck around with the heroes and have it work. And I think it works better with Holland, perhaps because Marvel's so committed to this jokey tone with everything. And I think you're like, look, and MCU has a problem, like the self-referential, overly joking stuff that undercuts the states. It would be akin to making a Star Wars movie that insists on calling out Star Wars as a fairy tale when it is, in fact, a fairy tale. It would almost push the same buttons, right? Of like, why is this light on? Hey, if these villains are really, if these (laughs) villains are really, if these villains are really at a level where you threaten the world, you just wouldn't be making jokes. You're prioritizing jokes over the reality. It would almost be like saying. Hey, if you have like the modern knights and princesses, why shit on the very idea that knights can be knights and princesses can be princesses? Like it would almost be the same. Griff, I'm imagining Ed Harris like on mission control and his his like sweat starts pooling. Yes. <laughs> He's like, I don't like I'm this not, reading. I'm not dwelling on it. 
I'm, I'm just saying theoretically, and I didn't even name a specific movie that does or does not do of that. Course. I'm just saying. We have no of- idea what movie you're talking about. Get literally rolled up his sleeves. <laughs> he did. He didn't take in his glasses preparation off. For that. Last time you he were taking your glasses, glasses off when you, uh, when you were about to get fired up. I don't get what I... I'm not trying to start a fight here. I'm just saying I agree that when you have an iconic franchise, you want to treat it with some dignity that allows the source material to stand on a, fa- a firm foundation. That, that's a take I understand it, and I know where you're coming from. I just don't think uh, Rise of Skywalker has any majesty to it. I whatsoever. didn't even say anyway, the name of that movie. Well, Who knows what on. movies we're talking knows, about? This is all I want to say. Final thing about the jokiness thing, okay? And then I got another hot take that actually might be even more controversial. Well, yeah, we'll get to the next hot take. I want to tie off this hot take so we could get to the next hot take. I do. I understand what you're saying, Geth. That maybe the studio was like, he can't tell jokes. He's the hero, right? Like, they, I I could see that being a dumb studio note. All this to say, I also think there's a reality in which it just didn't work, right? Sure, where it just doesn't match with McGuire's thing, and it just... There might be some real cutting room floor stuff out there of jokes. It's not his strength, right? Because I do think in rewatching Spider-Man 3, they do make him jokier in that, and it doesn't work as well. Like, he's jokier in the bully McGuire mode, where he's, like, fucking with people more. The tone is so much swinging so wildly in that movie, whereas right. in here, in 2, it's so controlled. That's not his strong suit, and you cast this guy, and you gotta get the best Spider-Man performance that he can give, rather than trying to get him to serve every tenant of what Spider-Man could be. And, look, at the end of the day, too, this, to me, still is the high-water mark of superhero movie. So, again, I'm nitpicking. We're having fun here. We're and having a great time. If, if, if the, he had more jokes... And that removed the amount of times that Tobey Maguire, like that for Kirsten Dunst to just unload on him of like, here's the list of everybody who's shown up at my play. Your aunt, your sick aunt has shown up. This person showed up this many times. Like Harry's come twice and I dumped him. Yeah. Like who, I don't know an actor of that era more than Tobey Maguire who can just sit there and absorb that. No. And not need to respond in order to kind of affect, the conversations always feel like they end on his reaction and he's not saying anything. He does some top shelf listening in this movie. Incredible. Top, lo- a lot of like, you know, monologues like Mary Jane's like that you're mentioning him, letting them hit him, letting them settle him, you know, him taking time with them being quiet it, and which is unusual. The scene where he confesses to Aunt May about the, the night of Ben's death. Oh, my God. Hard to watch. They, they cut away watch. from him one time for like a fleeting second. It's pretty much an unbroken wonder. I remember the first time I saw this movie almost being mad about that scene because I was like, I was too in it where I was like, don't tell her. Don't tell. It's, you know, she doesn't need to hear it. You know, you know, like you start getting emotional in this way, like you're connected to these people. Yeah. Anyway. You know what else jumps out, too, uh, that's tied to this topic is one of the funniest moments of this movie from modern times is he saves the train, barely. Mm-hmm. His mask gets torn off because he ain't Superman. Like, this is not pretty. This is not easy for him. His knee, he hurts his knee on the track. Like, the fact that they should. And then that line, iconic, an iconic line. He's just a kid. He's and you're kind kid. of looking at him Incredible. and you're like, but watching it today, I'm kind of like, that's kind of what Tom Holland has. Like, Tom Holland looks more like a kid. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Maguire's a little less kiddish. But I still think it's crucial that, yeah, he's still like, you know, his frame is not massive. And Tobey Maguire does have a boyish face. But I, and I bring it up in saying that 
another scene where he's playing it unconscious and he's the center of gravity of the whole thing in a way that, like I'm saying, maybe he couldn't nail jokes. Maybe the network didn't want jokes. Maybe Raimi overthought jokes to a degree that I wish he hadn't. All possible. But I, I would not trade... If, if any of that was to undercut moments like that where Tobey Maguire's doing so much with so little, I wouldn't trade him. Right, that's the bigger point for me. What's your other hot take? Okay. Oh, boy. Uh, you know what? I don't want to get everybody mad. No, I think, come on. Do you want to save this one for later? Well, no, because I. Uh, the last thing I want to do is just, I don't want people thinking I'm coming in sure, here. Sure, you don't want to be, like, just known as, like, bomb thrower or whatever. Right, you don't yeah. want to be known as, like, blank checks go-to rabble rouser. I'm just not trying to be like Floyd Mayweather, where you know, like, oh, he's saying the most controversial shit to sell the most tickets possible. Like, I'm not trying to do that. Okay. You have been talking up a big game that you want this to be the most listened to episode of Blank Check ever, that you want it to break the ratings. Listen, am I the only one who can't help? How do you guys feel about Peter's apartment in this movie? Uh, like we, with Mr. Dickovich, like his crappy little one studio or whatever it is. And the bathrooms down the hall, like... It, it, it hit a point where I was like, man, you're hammering this one so hard. Like, no one in, no one in New York City has lived like this since, like, WPA photographers Chris. were said to document the Lower East Side. Is in the this 30s. your hot take? Is this your hot take? This is the hot take. They overdid it with the apartment. Okay, okay. All right, all right. I'm going right, to, okay. I, I think I can quickly. And I knew it was going to get you upset. And I'm seeing that it got you upset. I can quickly just send this one back over the net. It's easy. Look, this this movie, Geth, is obviously it's sort of like quasi set in the present day, but it's basically set in the golden age of comic. I mean, sorry, the silver age of comic books, right? You know, in the the sort of Ditko era, and that is absolutely the kind of shitty, you know, converted tenement apartment that you, like too much. No, no, no. I knew people who lived and then in the those in the nineties. No, 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 no. I like I had friends in the nineties, my mom's friends and stuff, who would live in those like Carol Gardens apartments where it's a it's a little old Italian lady downstairs, the bathroom's in the hall. Like, you know, it's just... And, like, her son lives in the other apartment, and she's always like, ah, 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 you know, like, the very classic cartoony. That shit is very New York. I dated someone last year who was like, yeah, my apartment's weird, but at least I have a bathroom. And I was like, what do you mean by at least I have a bathroom? And she was like, all the other units on my floor <laughs> share a communal bathroom in the hallway. In the year 20... 21. So right back over the net, Gath. New York City. I know I know someone, indeed, I know someone who lives on the Upper West Side who lives like in, basically in a dorm. It's basically yes. a dorm. Yes. Your, your, your bathroom's in the hallway and you live in a one-room apartment that has like a bed and a kitchenette in it. Yeah. I lived in an apartment where the store, a floor above me was that exact same like setup where it was three different apartments in a shared bathroom. Yeah, fucking Hey Arnold house. I'm saying that they tried to squeeze a little too much juice out of that orange in Spider-Man 2 and for and and it took me out of it. It hit a point where I'm going, I get it. He lives like dog shit. Yeah. He does have a balcony though. He does have a balcony. He has a, he has a nice balcony. Do I love the chocolate but then even as I'm saying it out loud I go, do I love the chocolate scene? chocolate cake scene as much if they don't. You really need the chocolate cake and you need rent. I mean, rent is you one of the rent. most down like funniest one line perf one word performances that in the, in any movie, right? Touche. I withdraw my. Right? I withdraw it. I've been convinced. I've been convinced. Uh, I get it. I know you said because unlike some, pe well, just some yeah. people th maybe seem to think I'm not the type of person who can have a discourse where my opinions might bend or change over time. 
some people might think that I'm a little dogmatic about my opinions on certain franchises. And I just want to point out that that was a moment where I was really willing to learn and clearly show that maybe some other people might be the ones hanging on to some dogmatic tendencies on Reddit. But that being said, yeah, I know you hate Reddit. I know you already said that everyone <laughs> on Reddit thinks they're funny and that literally no one on Reddit is funny. But I want to direct your attention to a subreddit that I think is the funniest. It is r slash Mr. Dietrich memes. And it's an entire subreddit of just doing... Well, it's clearly Ditko. It's, it's, right? it's Ditko. She's named after yeah. Steve Ditko. Yeah. But it's just people creating wow, uh, memes of Mr. Ditkovich asking for rent. Some of them wow. are videos. Some of them are Photoshop. I'm going to go to top all time Yeah, they're this. incredible. They're incredible. Because I follow r slash Raimi memes, which is really good and fertile. And then the Mr. Ditkovich memes were taking over Raimi memes. And they were like, we got to spin this off to its own thing. I gotta say, number one on uh, all time <laughs> is pretty good. <laughs> uh, it's Peter. It's the exchange that's in the movie. I'm sorry, Mr. Dickovich. All I have, you know, blah, 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 until the end of the week. But he says, all I have is this board game until the end of the week. And he's and holding, what's Photoshop in his hand? He's holding a copy of the board game. Sorry. And of course, Mr. Dickovich says, sorry, doesn't pay the rent. <laughs> you know, I don't think I noticed. Is that wait? Who's behind him there? I don't know. Oh, Maybe that's not an actor. Is, is it that no, guy? That is? Is that uh, Louis Lombardi? Louis Lombardi from like uh, 24 and stuff? I got to look it up. It definitely looks like him. I think I it know. is. Wait, isn't that the guy who played the uh, FBI agent on The Sopranos? Uh, that the same actor, correct? That is the same actor. I'm not sure if it's him. It does look like him, though. Going to look it up. A lot, a lot of notable actors making... Glorified Spider-Man 2 poker player Louis Lombardi. Louis Lombardi, there he is. He was so good on 24 and on The Sopranos. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, in, and remember, it was one of those things, one of those classic, not to spoil 24 for anyone, but when they killed him off, where it was a good moment, obviously, like it was dramatic. Edgar Styles, that was his character in 24. And then you were just immediately like, you fucked up. You can't kill off a character that good. You know, you, you want him in your rotation. Like it sucks to not have him. Anyway, um, you know, no one cares <laughs> about my 24 take. No, I'm sorry. I just saw another really <laughs> saw good, good one, one saw a good which week. is P Peter, Peter wrapped up right after Doc Ock has delivered him to Harry's penthouse. And then like the close up on his face and then the hand comes and pulls the mask off and it's Peter maskless looking at him and then reverse shot. Mr. Dikovich is photoshopped over James Franco's face, holding the knife, just saying, give me rent. You know, it's it's really hard to describe memes. I'm realizing this as <laughs> we know, go on. They're so good. Um, anyway. Welcome to the podcast where we react to, to memes, memes you memes. can't see. Uh, Spider-Man 2. Geth, do you remember the first time you saw this movie? Like, were you there opening night? Were you there at midnight? Like, were you, you know, how pumped were you for it? 2004 is when it comes out. I remember, I'm fairly certain that I saw it at the uh, Willowbrook Mall in New mm, Jersey. Sure. sure. And I think it was opening weekend, if not opening night. But I remember being really psyched because I, I had really enjoyed the first one. And I remember walking out. I mean, the, I, I, I remember, so I had lived in New Jersey, moved to LA for a little bit, came back to Jersey, and I moved to New York in the fall of 2004. So this is right before then. Right, right. before this I went. The summer of 04. And yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, I remember feeling like um, the subway scene, which we've talked so much about, mm -hmm. but the reaction of those New Yorkers who all decide we're not going to take a picture of them, we're not going right. to... We won't tell. Right. And when it's become such a thing of, 
who is it? Who is it? Between Harry and J. Jonah Jameson and everybody mm-hmm. wants to know who is Spider-Man, who is Spider-Man. All the New Yorkers doing it. And then that moment of if you want to get to him, you got to go through me and me and me and these New Yorkers stepping in with fear yeah. on their faces, knowing that they, they, they might get fucking killed for doing this, but they're going to do it. I don't want to be too schmaltzy, but as somebody who had been in the New York area on 9-11, somebody who was doing, I was in town doing shows on 9-13, like grew up with a view of the New York City skyline. That scene, maybe more than any other, I would say in the history of, you know, so many legendary New York movies, that subway scene made me cry my eyes out. And I remember feeling like, man, that's what I love about New York and New Yorkers. I know. It is the best kind of like, I obviously the New Yorker moment in the first movie is so on the nose and kind of, you know, sort of sweet now felt silly then to me at least. And then this one, you're like, that's it. That's, that's what he was well, trying so, to do. But, yeah. but that moment was shot pre nine 11. It's, it's perfectly measured in this way. I mean, there's another thing I remember seeing this. I think I saw it at, uh, AMC Lincoln square midnight. And I remember just having that feeling of like, holy shit, I can't fucking believe how good this is. Scene to scene to scene of just like, are they going to fuck this up? Are they going to fuck this up? That entire train sequence feeling like orgasmic, right? Yeah. And, then li- and then the fact that when the action sequence ends, it ends with such a resonant, like sort of emotional payoff. But I also think rewatching it and trying to like place myself in the headspace of it now because I, I still do think this is thought of as like a high watermark of like set piece construction. But at the time, the subway sequence was fucking mind blowing. And now when you have like the last hour of an Avengers movie be 800 characters all fighting with their power sets at the same time, it's like anything feels possible, right? Like, the, you know, you have to be clever in story construction. There's nothing visually you can show us that feels like I can't believe they're putting this on screen. I think at that time, the fact that that sequence goes on for like eight consecutive minutes felt impossible. Mm -hmm. Like you watch the action sequences in the first Spider-Man and they're pretty fucking quick. Yeah. There's just a thing where there was like a limit to how long you could sustain superhero action in a movie, especially people are like defying physics. If there's that level of CGI involved, it's like, you can have something really cool happen for like a minute and then someone has to fly away. You cannot have this be sustained. If it goes on longer from this, it's two people with their feet planted punching each other. And this sequence, you're just like, it keeps on heightening and heightening and heightening. It goes on for so long, so long, so long, so long. And then to have this weird, sad sort of like resolution of it. And then, and then the ending just blew my fucking mind. And it just felt like such a complete statement, such an insane like... This is a sequel that truly found a way to iterate everything in the first movie successfully. Took everything that worked and made it even better and gave us more of it and took everything that didn't work and perfected it and just felt like perfect on all its own terms. And I walked out and I was like, I just cannot fucking believe this movie exists. I, I, and, and saw it so many goddamn times. I think for me, I saw it at the Odeon Leicester Square opening weekend in London because that's where I lived at the time in 2004. Huh. Put that out there. Huh. Just gonna put that out there. Weird. I oh. uh, saw so my friend Howard. Shout out Howard Amos. Um, who uh, big, big rules. shout out to Howie. We saw it together, and I remember for me, obviously the subway sequence, and we, we can talk about it more even later. But uh, for me, it was the also the surgery sequence. You know well, where it kind of yeah. goes full Raimi monster movie. I remember at the time being like, like kind of being like, is this allowed? Like you know, just being so impressed with how 
happily bananas that sequence was. And nothing in the first movie, you know, quite is that unrestrained, Raimi, right? Like, you know, right. that feels like him really cutting loose being like, okay, you know, these are my movies, right? I get you, to do You've this. made a better Spider-Man movie and you've also snuck in a full uncut Raimi sequence in the middle of it. It was like, you're, you're solving concerns I didn't even have. Yes, exactly. Like you, Griff, I saw it a bunch. And I think I just, over the next couple of years, I went from like, that's an amazing movie to like, oh yeah, that's like a sort of, best picture snub like you know like yeah that's actually a movie worth taking really seriously which roger ebert was one of the few people at the time who was like no this like deserves to be like viewed very seriously um so i love spider-man 2 much like spider-man 1 it's just anytime i throw it on you know i threw on to rewatch for this podcast obviously i'm just like oh right i know i know every beat of this right i i, I know all the lines like you know it's just kind of written into my brain this one like even without trying i just i'm just completely familiar with everything about it and and yet it still always delights me uh which is great it it was uh i'm just looking here it was roger ebert's number four movie of the year i think he argued several times it should have gotten a best picture nomination it was million dollar baby kill bill volume two is his number two mm. farrah drake spider-man two mulat that's quite a five that's wait well, what's the fifth one Mulad Usman Samben's female oh, yeah, 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 circumcision yeah, yeah. drama. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great movie, yeah. actually. Yeah. I, there's something else I want to say, which is that there's almost something. There's something we haven't brought up and dwelled on. I just mm. looked at how long we've been talking, and it's it's kind of shocking. We got a lot more. Well, to look, talk it's about. almost shocking that we haven't gone here yet. But then you think of it, and you go, because it is so obvious to anyone. Mm. I mean, half an hour into this movie, it was obvious. At the end of the movie, it's obvious, and it's obvious today. 20 years later, the sky is blue and water's wet and Alfred Molina puts on one of the best performances of a villain that has ever been committed to cinema yes. in this yeah. movie. Okay, let's dig in. If we want to talk about why Spider-Man 2 is better than Spider-Man 1, why Spider-Man 2 still might be the best superhero film of all time, we're nitpicking James Franco and Tobey Maguire, Tobey Maguire's apart, uh, performances. To me, I feel and like... And apartments. If you, and apartments. But if you... To me, it kind of feels like if you played a supervillain after this and you didn't sit down and watch Molina's performance as research, you fucked up and didn't do your full job. Gether, do you know that the entire No Way Home concept was reverse engineered from that conversation? Of just, you can't beat Molina? Yeah, that it was Pascal and Feige trying to blue sky what the third Spider-Man could be, which at that mm. point I think was still supposed to be a Craven. Spider-Man's identity is out. Everyone's trying to hunt him movie was the original idea. Mm -hmm. And they were like, is that enough? Is there a second villain? What do you do? And Pascal was like, I mean, it feels like we should bring Doc Ock back, right? Right. Let's and do Doc Feige Ock. Who plays like, Doc Ock? Right. Right. Yeah. And Feige just said, how do you possibly touch that performance? It's like the thing we backed ourselves into with J.K. Simmons. You're not going to get anyone else to play this better. Like, how do you even touch that? It's a shame we can't just have Alfred Molina play Dr. Octopus again. Right, right. And then the entire thing came out of like, what if we could? What are the implications of that? And then what if from there you bring the other guys back? And you know what's crazy about that movie? Is, because I loved it. I loved that movie to death. And I rarely get to go see movies in the theater anymore. And we prioritize mm -hmm. that one. Got the babysitter in the time of COVID when I saw it. But what I love about that movie is like, all the people from the Sony, like Tom Holland kills it, Tomei kills it. Um, I have some problems with some of the ancillary characters. I had a mm -hmm. friend who saw um, 
uh, Ned's performance in the first one and just called out like this, this guy, Ned, that was cringy. And I've never been able to fully commit to Ned because my friend decimated it so hard, but mm -hmm. by and large, and then you're bringing them back. Right. And Garfield gets his moments and mm -hmm. Jamie Foxx gets to call out the ludicrousness of the past one and say like, now I'm going to be cool in this one. And Toby Maguire, certainly, I think they honor yeah. him and give him some moments. Um, in a way that also maybe retroactive, you know, now not every, between this and Spider-Verse, not every Spider-Man needs to be funny. Some of them can be alcoholic. Some of them can be emo. Yep. Some of them can be Gwen Stacy. Like, so it starts to make a little more sense, right? And stand out. Um, all of these people crushing their moments. Defoe comes back and you're like, yeah. holy fucking shit, Defoe is good. And even still, 20 years later, none of them, can quite reach the height of Molina in this character today, round two. He does it again in a movie that's a nostalgia fest about people, everyone getting to come out and take a big nostalgia swing. He still is the backbone of the whole thing in a way that's fucking mind-blowing. And I would argue they give him the least to do. Like, everyone else is given a meteor assignment. He's just fucking gravitas and presence. Uh, you know... And, and, and right, the, the, his big moment in No Way Home is when he gets to be good again. Brilliant. Which moment. is this sort of like incredible relief where you're like, right, that he was so sweet and genuine and tender in those, like, you know, the couple scenes he has before he goes crazy. Yeah. And you're kind of thrilled to see it again. When he was announced Griffin, I love Dr. Octopus, right? I'm, yeah. I'm a big Spider-Man. I'm like, who are they going to have? And I just remember being like, Alfred Molina, the stuffy villain from Chocolat, like Diego from Frida, like, you know, I mean, obviously you Snidely whiplash from the Dudley Do-Right movie. Like, that's his most prominent villain role in a, a mainstream movie. Bo Boogie Nights. The, the one thing is there's Boogie Nights, where you're like, sure. he's so insane in that one scene. I guess I was like, okay, I remember that. But I definitely was like, a little baffled that he was the pick. It was very surprising casting. And when you look at like the other people that were sort of vaguely concerned, there was such insane rumor mongering and even like fan arting at that time. I remember people being like, fucking Robin Williams, like anyone who was just like a big name because the movie was so big. Well, was, I can, like, I can no tell you, one... I can tell you who the four were. Well, it's what I find interesting is yeah. that the four names were essentially four guys who were getting all the precursor nominations for Best Supporting Actor that year. Correct. In 2002. Yeah. Right. And then Alfred Molina gets snubbed but gets Spider-Man as the ultimate reward. So it was Ed Harris for The Hours, Chris Cooper for Adaptation, who wins, mm -hmm. Christopher Walken for Catch Me If You Can, right. and Alfred Molina for Frida, who was getting the precursors. And doesn't get in at the last. And is probably yeah. the the least well known of those four actors at the time. Not yeah. that he's a nobody, but he's not a, a huge name, maybe. But and they start filming this movie early in 2003. They're casting it late 2002. It makes sense that they're like, let's go big. Let's get someone who's about to fucking get an Oscar nomination or win this year. And it, he's still far and away the most surprising pick from that group. Um. Yeah. And and he is just so real and like just so. It's it's funny because like in the comics, Doctor Octopus is supposed to basically be a megalomaniac, right? He's like suit. He's like I'm the smartest. I'm the best. That's he's like a right. goblin too. He's like eh, eh, eh. yeah, yeah. He's pretty. He's kind of a creep. He he. You know, there's a lot of storylines like where he even in the Dicko like where he like dates Mary Jane. I mean, sorry, Mary Jane, Aunt May. 
Well, yes, but but also th- there were so this movie very nearly was uh, Doctor Octopus as same age rival to Peter Parker gets trapped in love triangle with Mary Jane. That's in the Michael Shabon script. We can talk about it, but like to have him be more of like a tragic monster, universal horror villain, mm-hmm. you know, like that's that's kind of a swerve from the comic book character. It doesn't bother me at all. Obviously, no. They nail it so hard. Like it's 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 so beautiful. And Donna Murphy, you know, is so incredible in that like one scene, you know, you so you totally feel it. You need basically nothing. The fucking Donna Murphy performance. I, I was watching this with commentary, and like everyone was just like, Jesus Christ, did she do us a solid on this movie? Right, because she's there for five minutes. Right. It's it's very little, and yet you'd need it so bad. But it's like the one scene where he goes over to dinner, it's like, there's an entire performance here. There's an entire relationship here. You fully believe she so quickly sets up in this dynamic with her husband that, like, this is Peter for the first time seeing a possibility of what his life could be. And also understanding how much Octavius loves her so that when she dies, you believe it's fully going to fucking break him. And you kind of believe that he's a little, slightly high on his own supply. Not yes. in a bad way, exactly, but someone who maybe will take it a little too far because he really believes in it. That that scene is incredible for how much it uh, accomplishes and sets up dramatically, not plot-wise, but dramatically in the emotional dynamics of its characters in like three minutes that reverberates across the entire rest of the film. I have to ask two, que- two Molina questions. I have to, if it's okay, if I can plug a thing. Yeah, and ask you, and then plug another thing. And ask you. First of all, uh, my friend John Ross Bowie, who I've known many, many years, who people might know from 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 Big Bang Theory and Speechless and a bunch of stuff. He has a great podcast called Household Faces, where he interviews other character actors who take a lot of pride in being character actors, and he interviews Molina, who really considers himself a character actor. And if you want to do a deep dive, it will make you love him even more. Um, because he just speaks to being a stage actor and a scrapping it out film actor and speaks to Spider-Man and blah, blah, blah. The other question I have, since we're on the topic of Dr. Octopus, have you read Superior Spider-Man? Yes. Yes. Brilliant. Um, Which is wonderful. Everyone, if you are a fan of the dynamic between, this was written clearly, I think, I I think, you know, in a post-Molina as Doc Ock world. Absolutely. Came out in 2013. But the relationship between Doc Ock being good and bad and balancing that with his feelings about Spider-Man. If anybody out there is not a comic book fan but wants to go read more that push these exact same buttons that Molina nails, that series really does it. Really does it. Yeah. Molina is fucking unbelievable. I was watching so many uh, of the interviews and stuff from the time and he like really talks about like, I was astonished they hired me. I was astonished I got called in for the meeting. That's not the kind of actor I was. I was never up for these types of parts. I knew I had a little Oscar heat from Frida, but even still. And he was like, I didn't feel like the meeting went that well. I didn't, there wasn't any follow-up. When they told me I had the job, I was astounded. Do we know who was, was Raimi his champion? Who championed him that hard? I don't know. Probably Raimi, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounded like it was a combination of him somehow being the consensus choice between Ziskin, Raimi, and Arad, who were the three main decision makers at this point in in the franchise, but also not just like a consensus, like settling choice that all three of them were like, I think that's, it seems crazy, but he seems like the guy. And they also talk about that, like, um, 
one of the guys who was the one of the concept artists for the movie. This movie, like, they were filming this less than a year after the first one came out, right? Like, they, he was, Raimi was starting development meetings on this film the week after the film was released, and they already were working on scripts at that point. It was, like, such a fast-moving train that they were just throwing so much shit at the wall to sort of figure it out later. And this one concept artist said that they kept on just being like, we have no idea what the fuck Doc Ock looks like. We don't know who we're going to cast. We don't know if he's 25 or if he's 60. Like, we don't know what this is. Just keep on throwing stuff at the wall. And that he had a drawing and Molina had not entered the conversation yet for casting that kind of looked like Molina. That was like what this character ended up looking like in the movie. The final tentacle design, the trench coat the stockiness of the body, just the whole energy of the thing. And it just felt like when he drew that, everyone went like, huh, that kind of makes sense for this version of the character. And I wonder to a degree if then when they take the meeting with him, they're like, he fits this version that we're already maybe leaning towards. Let's also note too, in that interview he did with, uh, on the podcast I mentioned, this was a world where CGI hadn't totally taken over yet. And there was a lot of, a lot of those tentacles were puppeteered. Yeah, they're, they're like they're seventy-five percent. There's a lot of scenes where he's acting his ass off and surrounded yes. by people pushing and prodding sticks and strings and shit like yeah. that. Like that's right. yeah, amazing. The behind-the-scenes footage is insane. It, it is truly yeah, because the vast majority of the time, like subway sequence excluded, a vast majority of the time it is is puppeteered live. Okay, Spider-Man One is a huge hit. Raimi is not signed for Spider-Man Two. Like mm -hmm. ra a rarity these days, obviously. Right. But back then, you know. So uh, he's really into it. He signs on. He wants to make another one. But as will happen with Spider-Man 3, Sony basically like it's like 4th of July weekend 2004. It's on the calendar. We are hitting this date. They, in fact, even originally said first weekend of May. It was like a big fight to push it back two months. They wanted the exact same weekend. Yeah. Um, right. Exactly. Uh, so... You know, that's hard. Um, and they basically need to start working right away on all this, you know, uh, visual effects stuff, the action sequences, like all, all the stuff you're going to need to create, you know, from the ground up before you even, you know, start filming proper. Um, and they've so hired Guff and Millar to write the first draft of the script before right. even Raimi has signed up for the sequel. So they're sort of stewing on that. But I think they uh, already yes. know... We don't have time to lose. So they're like four different scripts are being written simultaneously. Right. But the biggest thing that Raimi is interested in is the very famous Amazing Spider-Man number 50, Spider-Man No More, right? Which is one of the most famous Spider-Man comics. The image of him walking away from the suit in the trash can, right? You know, that's Laura Ziskin, who's one of the producers, uh, is like basically like that's sort of such a famous arc for him. It feels like such a classic movie two thing, right? The sort of like, can we bring him low, have him renounce it and then swing him back up again right uh very empire strikes back very right like very 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 mm -hmm. obvious place to alight on for a second film mm -hmm. uh you know we've done the origin now this is the sort of coming of age like learning responsibility all that stuff go and millar like you say griff they're on smallville mm -hmm. so they're brought in first david kep does a draft mm -hmm. Then Michael Shabon, who had just won the pulitzer for the amazing adventures of cavalier and clay which is a book that has that Silver Age comics, you know, energy. 
comes in and writes a script that is sort of notorious and you were referencing it there, Griff. I'm, I'm sure you've heard about it basically, but mm-hmm. that's the script where the Dr. Octopus is almost in a love triangle with Peter and MJ. Uh, there's yes. this scene where they go to an Ethiopian restaurant and eat dinner. And he's like, I like to eat with my hands. I'm a little freaky and stuff like, you know, like he's a lot more of like a, a, a dirty dog <laughs> in that <laughs> script. I don't really know how else to put it. Um, But also that script makes it clear that Peter is draining his powers using Ock technology. He gives him a special chip. Like they make the uh, loss of Peter's powers scientific in that script versus in the movie where it's really just kind of a vibes thing. Yeah. And I think they, I think they ended up in the right place. Like, I don't think you need all that. I think it's fine in the movie that it's just kind of like, he doesn't want to do it anymore. And like the moral mission just kind of leaves him like, yes, it's a little, you know, it's not very comic booky in a way, but I, I mean, I don't know what you guys think. No, I think, I, I think it's uh, the entire success of this movie is what we keep on going back to, which is just like, there's such a clearly identified spine to this thing, which everything right. ends up being in communication with directly, which is just this battle of like, is it worth being Spider-Man or not? Right. Yeah. And it, it, there's a simplicity to how it all comes together that it's why I think this maybe movie was able to survive and come out so coherent despite being like this rush production, multiple drafts being written at the same time by different writers, all these things, because Raimi knew like what the core tenants were. And I think it's so much smarter to not make that some complicated plot thing to make it just, it's the inner battle within this guy. Right, exactly. And, but look, all these scripts kind of have the same beats of, you know, the train fight is there. You know, the, the Dr. Octopus lab showdown at the end is there. You know, they have the, the action beats, I think, are basically clear across all these scripts. It's about everything else in they're, the middle. They're shooting the train sequence in, like, fall of 2002. They had to get so ahead of it because the special effects were going to be so revolutionary that they, like, don't have a script. And they're like, send a crew out, go film on the L in Chicago, Chicago. Right, right. right? Just get a bunch of fucking footage, and we'll figure this out later. I think, um, I think everything that's being said makes so much sense, and mm-hmm. I think what these are all stabs at. What I really appreciate as a comic book fan, because I was saying before, it feels really weird to not have quips, and we've discussed. There's a million reasons why maybe that could have happened, right? Um, sure. Whether it was artistic choice, whether it was mandate, whether it was McGuire wasn't nailing it, so cutting room floor, whatever happened there. Happen there, but one thing that this movie, you can tell Sam Raimi really understood, is when you look at superheroes, right? Like Superman is a god in the sky and a Boy Scout with morals, right? Like Batman is driven by this darkness and is a really great detective. The X Men are a family and they have to overcome like cosmic mm-hmm. threats and mm-hmm. robots by coming together as a family. They're all at their, you see that they are at their best when the heroic traits rise to the surface in the face of adversity. Mm-hmm. But Spider-Man, if you really read the comics, Spider-Man is at his best when he loses. Yeah, the yeah, best, he's, yeah. Spider-Man no more. He fucking lost. Like the master planner, if you ever read the original Ditko arc, it, you know, it builds up to this idea of the master planner where Doc Ock buries him under a bunch of equipment and he's drowning right. and he realizes, holy shit, I'm going to die. Aunt May's going to have no one. And that's when right. he comes out and that's when he becomes at his best in the iconic scene that's been aped in a million comics and movies ever since. And he mm-hmm. lifts all this stuff off him. 
It's only after he loses Craven's Last Hunt by J.M. D. Mateus. If you haven't read that, Abs- absolutely insane story. One of the coolest J- comic one of the I coolest ever read. Comic- my, blew my mind so hard. But David, you can vet, again. If anybody doesn't want to know this, the spoilers, skip ahead sure. right now. Go check it out. Oh, sure. Right, Go yeah. check it out or skip right right now. Like you can fetch me. That story is basically Craven the Hunter shows back up because he's like, I've never met a successfully hunt Spider-Man. And he spends three issues, I believe, beating the shit out of Spider-Man. And Spider-Man just loses. Yeah. And then he then he buries Spider-Man and puts on a Spider-Man costume and rampages around being like, I'm Spider-Man. It's, <laughs> the fucking, uh, it's fucking insane. It's insane. I mean, and like it's funny because that's what superior Spider-Man is as well, right? It's like, you know villains coming into contact with sort of the goodness of Spider-Man through trying to be him is a very interesting arc uh, that is repeated in Spider-Man. There's a running theme with Spider-Man of the world beats the shit out of him. And only when he's just on the brink of being eliminated forever, do they realize how much they need him. It's a really, really weird archetype for a hero. When you think about it, like every other hero gets put under adversity and that's when the powers come out. He is at his best when it crosses past a threshold where he actively loses. And this movie does that in a way that when you think about how much money was on the line and how yes. much superhero movies were not a locked in thing that had been historically made fun of up until the past few years, like pretty bold that they were allowed to have him strike out and lose as much as they did in this movie. But it squeezes all of what is so identifiable and great about Spider-Man. It's why Marvel is better than DC. Because they were the ones that figured out, Agreed. oh, you want to see yourself in a hero, but you are never going to be handed Superman's power. You're never going to find a green ring that can make you the Green Lantern. But you can be a high school kid who gets his fucking ass handed to him by life and have to step up. That's why Mar- Marvel is better than DC because of Spider-Man. And it's not because of Fantastic Four, which came first. It's because of Spider-Man. And this movie, they went there in a way that was a Pretty bold choice for a studio to bank on and for Sam Raimi to stake his reputation with the character on as well. But I think part of that is they made this very bold choice at the end of the first movie, which is they're not going to end up together, right? And we talked about this in the previous episode, uh, or maybe we talked about Spider-Man 3, but David Kep said that was part of his original pitch even before Sam Raimi came on. He said the two things I think you need to do to make this movie work are Got to take a lot of time before you put him in the suit. We have to really build it up. And two, he can't end up with her at the end of the movie. He has to walk away, right? And the fact that that movie was such a resounding success, and I do think the reason it was such a sort of transcendent success is that movie succeeds in making people care about that relationship and that romance. I do think that's the thing that pushed it to a different tier of blockbuster was... People were invested in Peter and Mary Jane, and part of it's the chemistry and part of it's the writing, part of it's the earnest belief in these two characters and and whether or not they deserve this love and all that sort of shit. That sets the table very well to make a movie where they can go into this film with confidence that we can have this guy lose a fucking bunch. This guy can be Charlie Brown. We can keep on pulling the football. Especially for the first half of this movie, maybe even two thirds. This yeah. movie actually has this insane structure where there is not a lot of action in the middle at all. Like everything you think about with Spider-Man 2, you're like, oh God, that thing is so packed with action. It's mostly at the back of the movie. It's yes. mostly the final act, which is just unrelenting. Like you're bang, 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 bang. But there's so much sadness and weirdness in the middle, which I love. 
The first third is him as Spider-Man failing comically. The middle section is him fully disavowing being Spider-Man. Right, right, right. And right. then the final third is like, I'm Spider-Man with a fucking vengeance. Which we'll get, we'll get to. But okay. We'll get to. Alvin Sargent comes aboard. The scriptwriter of Ordinary People, Julia, Oscar Paper winner, old, old vet, right? And the he's fucking the one, goat. Right. He's the one who basically comes in and with Sam and Ivan Raimi, pulls everything together from all the screenplays. He gets the sole screenplay credit. Story credits mm-hmm. go to everybody else. And I think he's just the guy who understands the emotional core of things. Right, Griff? Like, they give him all the credit for stuff like that Aunt May monologue, you know. It, yeah. it, yes. That's the thing for me. It's always been my belief that he's really the magic transcendent sauce in this movie. Although credit does, belongs to many, many people. It's that he was able to both, in his sort of uh, brilliance as a story man, isolate the things that worked in all the different separate drafts that had been done in their siloed developments uh, and and weave them all together cleanly, but also then put in these fucking dialogue scenes that that really sing and that have this kind of like uh, working class poetry to them, you know? Um, of course, the biggest issue and the thing that's most discussed about the pre-production of this movie is whether Toby Maguire will come back at all. He... Do you remember this, Chris, how big a fucking deal this was? No. He's contracted. He'd signed a deal, but uh, apparently he was so incommunicado with Pascal and Remy in between the f- the sec- first and second movies. Just went pre- off and did Sea Biscuit. He's doing Sea Biscuit, which is this kind of crazy, demanding role. He's playing a jockey. It's all this stuff, you know. Uh, and uh, he's also produced Twenty Fifth Hour, the Spike Lee movie, which right, is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, the most important thing is he refuses to do a full body computer scan. So because they need to scan his body to uh, like start work on the visual effects. And Tobey Maguire did admit later in a profile, he was basically like, look, I was working really hard on Seabiscuit. They wanted me to clean, to have be cleanly shaven and I had a beard for that movie. I was exhausted and I didn't get this as what important. And if I had known it mattered to Sam, I would have done it. And I, like, he feels bad about this. But basically, he kind of almost fucks the movie so hard by like dragging his feet on stuff like that that they announce in the news that they're pushing the movie from May 2004 to July 2004, like you said, Griff, mm-hmm. and that they're going to cast someone else. And they they throw it on his, quote-unquote, back issues. Uh, they're worried that, because he does have, apparently, you know, some sort of back problem. Uh, Sam Raimi publicly says at the time, like, I was worried maybe he would get paralyzed, that there would be some problem with his back. Right. Raimi always framed it as we weren't being vindictive. Because I think the other aspect is that... Uh, his agents want to get more money out of this. There's all film. that is going there's, on. There's that thread. I think he had back problems from Seabiscuit. I think his agents perhaps intensified the severity of the back problems to try to juice more money out. And then Raimi's response, which then I think extended to Sony is, well, if he has back problems, we're not going to have him do this movie because I can't live with there being an accident during production. And so Raimi reaches out to Jake Gyllenhaal who is a very young, exciting actor at the time. He's, he's and is pretty at brand this new. moment dating Kirsten Dunst. That's the weirdest element of this whole thing is that Dunst and Maguire date during the first movie. They break up. Maguire is now engaged to Jennifer Meyer and uh, Dunst is with Jake Gyllenhaal. She says yeah. it was not an easy time when all this was going down. Um, but yes, as you say, Toby Maguire is dating the president of Universal Studios' daughter, Jennifer Meyer. Ron, Ron Meyer, who is famous as being, up until recent history, this great mediator 
who even for movies that didn't concern him, he would like get in between big egos and parties and work things out. So Ron Meyer calls McGuire and he says, you don't want to be Michael Keaton. You don't want to fuck this up. You don't want to lose this role. He calls Amy Pascal. He says, don't drop Toby. This is a mistake. He calls in Joel Silver. Joel Silver like brings in the neck doctor who worked with Keanu Reeves on The Matrix because Keanu Reeves had this crazy neck you know, ish- injury on The Matrix and says like, tell him that he can do this movie. And the doctor like, looks through all the storyboards and is like, yes, you can do this. And like, that's the funniest thing to consider for me in this whole kerfuffle is a doctor. I imagine in a lab coat with a stethoscope walking through the production offices of Spider-Man two, looking at storyboards, like getting up really close. Will this break your back? (laughs) Looking at cartoon drawings of Spider-Man fighting Dr. Octopus and being like, "I I think this won't paralyze him. Um, and, uh, and then he was rehired and, oh, I'm seeing here also his salary was increased to $17 million. So I'm sure 17, that a clean uh, 17. You know, that's nice. Um, and of course there is the, oh, my back joke in the movie, which they wrote in and they were like, oh, should we do this? Is this too much? And no, everyone was like, we got to do it. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway. And then as you say, then the, a lot of the rest of the dossier is about Melina and, how they Raimi is just like he needs to be grounded in real understandable motivations he needs to have depth and reality he needs to be someone with passions and weaknesses and all that you know like he he doesn't want to just do the the Schumacher Batman thing of the 90s where it's like what's his deal deal is he's a villain right you know what I mean like that's what the Batman villains are mostly like it's like well a number one they're a villain they don't they are bad guys and they don't like good guys you know and that's just not what the Spider-Man movies are like it does, as we think about Molina, you know, before we were saying like, this one is, the dialogue is, this is the best superhero movie of all time. And then we were naming other movies that might be in consideration. David did some very dismissive hand signaling at my Thor Ragnarok. Are there any other, are there superhero, are there supervillain performances that hold a candle to Molina? Or is this one still setting the bar for you guys? Uh, top, the top tier for me, I would say is, I I mean, I think a lot of these are the cliched answers. Go ahead. But Jared Leto, uh, the Joker. Right. Uh, Jared Leto, the Joker in the Snyder cut. Um, Jared Leto, Michael Morbius. I I think, (laughs) I think the cliched answers, but they are the ones that come to mind are like Ledger Dark Knight. Uh, sure. uh, Pfeiffer Absolutely. Catwoman Absolutely uh, uh, Michael B. Jordan uh, Black Panther I still think is the best of the Marvel Good answer. villains Good answer The MCU villains I agree with that Yeah Although I would speak up for Hiddleston In the first Avengers movie But yeah uh, I, I think Hiddleston I think Hiddleston's up there I think Hiddleston's way up there uh, but then you, I, I mean, I'm trying to think of like who else even then Ian is McKellen in that seri- you could argue for um, Obviously X-Men. that's sort of Yeah as Magneto Obviously that's sort of like half villain half anti-hero in a way yeah. i guess but you know that's pretty big i mean some people would say nicholson and you know other you know burton guys right um i'm just trying to think like elite unimpeachable tier yeah i think i think that's the elite we also i gotta say i don't know if he's up at that tier but the michael keaton scene where he has the vulture when they're in the car is, I mean, I, I love that. Scene. I think that's a great. That is ch- yeah. a chilling scene that I don't know if it quite yes. reaches these names, but it's perfect. It doesn't. What's so good about that scene also is just that you're like, oh, Keaton, Keaton, 
open the cork up on this one. You know what I mean? Right. It's just nice to see him do I that. I think it's a phenomenal performance. I think maybe the character doesn't work as well as the other ones we're talking about, which like that tier is the, the elite is the character is perfectly conceptualized and the person's fucking knocking out of the part and the movie knows exactly how to use that. You know, but Melina is just so special and it's, it remains one of the most, you know, kind of like Ledger was, you know, as we've mentioned, you know, Ledger was also daring casting in its way. Doesn't yeah. feel that way now, but it was. And right where it's like, yeah, this is daring. This is, this is not what I would have imagined. And it's way beyond what I would have imagined. So good job guys. And it, I buy the Feige thing where he's like, I don't want to recast that role. Too tough. Like, Feige does understand that stuff. N not even that, where he was just like, we all, obviously, that's untouchable. You know? Not even like, I refuse. But like, it's obviously just not even, how do you do that? Um, watching so many of the Molina interviews, it was so funny because like, he talks around it and they all talk around it, but they were like, he hates stunts. Right. He hates stunts. And he has this quote that's really nice where he's like, look, I would never assume that a stuntman would come up to me and give me a line reading or tell right. me how to deliver a joke or how to, how to play a close-up or whatever. So I figured they're here, they're professionals, they're here for a job. I'm not one of these actors who needs to do my own stunts for ego. They're better at it than I will ever be. If there's something where they need me because of the framing and my face has to be visible there, I will do it, but I always would rather let the professional do it. And then they cut to the special effects guys and they're like, yeah, Alfred hates stunts. He just doesn't want to fucking do them. <laughs> And they're like, he's very noble in the way he talks about it. He's like, look, this isn't what I'm trained at. I'm like, right, a theater actor. This is bizarre. I don't do like blockbusters. It's been an interesting process. Like, he's very honest about it. And he's like, it's a very technical form of acting. I have yeah. weeks where I don't talk to anyone else, where either I don't have dialogue or my dialogue is with puppeteered with puppet claws. arms that that are right. weighing like 50 pounds and are strapped and to me it's like meticulous meticulous work and there's this funny thing where he and Raimi are shooting like a hi i'm alfred molina and i'm sam Raimi, and welcome to the dvd of spider-man 2 and it's the outtakes of him doing that and molina keeps on fucking it up and at one point he like snipes to Raimi. he's like i'm sorry it's just this is the most dialogue i've had to say in three months I mean, that's really funny. And, and, and he, he says it in like a very Raimi and Bruce Campbell fucking back and forth way. And Raimi keeps on making jokes at Molina and everything. It's, it doesn't feel like uh, actually bitter. But you do get the sense of him talking about like, this is a weird way to act. And it's not what I'm used to. And I don't totally understand why they hired me. But my job is to make this work. I have to know exactly what kind of movie I'm in. And it's a couple of those scenes, obviously him turning good at the, the end, the Donna Murphy dinner scene, but also that first fucking big abandoned pier warehouse. Talking to the scene. arms. Yeah, that fucking thing where you're just like. The classic village ar villain origin thing where it's like, we got to do this quick. We got to make the motivation clear and it can't be like ludicrous. And but that's the performance off. scene where I go, how the fuck does he pull this off? Because it is just him speaking to arms and he has to go through like 18 revolutions. Of like, no, no, listen, I, I'm good. My I'm a good scientist. My wife is dead. I'm good. I don't want to do it. May I have to do the experiment, though? Experiment can be done. The real I... crime would be not finishing what we started. To have it end on him standing on all legs, like reaching at the skies, at the heavens, going like, the power of the sun. Like, he had, there's a believable build to that. That's the thing for me where I'm like, I don't know if any other villain performance has had that kind of control of the dial you know 
yeah. where it's like someone like uh, uh, Ledger, what's impressive is that it's it's scary. There's menace. There's chaos there, you know? Yeah. And their villain performances like Pfeiffer, where she's going big and it's cartoonish and all that sort of stuff that work. And there's like a specificity and a smallness to Molina that can go all the way to like grand operatic. I'm I'm doing the soliloquy from a fucking splash page that is just kind of astounding. I'm going to say something. Yes. And I'm not trying to cause a fight. And I'm not trying to I'm not trying to bring up anything we're not supposed to bring up. Oh, but boy. it very much applies here. It does make me realize perhaps the only other villain that attained such heights while maybe being under such weird circumstances is one actor doing the body and a different actor doing the voice of a masked character whose face you never see named Darth yeah, Vader. I mean, it's, it's an interesting argument. It's, yeah. It's, it yeah. reminds me of that where you go, how did they make... Because that, right? Darth Vader at the end of the day is the iconic... Like, I mean, so much iconic stuff about yeah. Star Wars, but as far as a villain where you immediately feel scared and menaced because they nail it so hard, it's hard to top Darth Vader. And that was one person's body, another person's voice. You never see their face. It's impossible to replicate what they did with Vader because it's, why would you ever do it that way? It shouldn't like, work. It's, it's so stupid. bananas. Yeah. It's stupid. Uh, and by the way, when they do it today, you go, well, that's clearly the problem. Like, there are disastrous performances where you're like, well, the problem is they fucking dug them over. But you know what? One thing that they nailed so hard with that was, was between his look, his height, his movement. There was no amb ambiguity about the fact that he was evil. And they didn't feel like they yes. needed to paint that Star Wars world with shades of gray. They really allowed him to be... Okay, so here's the thing I like about <laughs> Dr. Octopus in this movie. Mm -hmm. Just balancing things they do really well, right? They get a lot of guff from the first movie on the Goblin I'll come back. Costume. I guess I'll just come back. I'll come back to it. Yeah. <laughs> they get a lot of guff for the Goblin costume, him looking like a Power Ranger, him having a mask, hiding Willem Dafoe for so much of the performance. So that's a big thing. They know they have an increased budget. They have sort of like, Raimi is given more trust because the movie is so well received on top of being such a big hit that the big thing they fight for is like, can we do the villain whose face is going to be exposed the entire time? Because that immediately makes this film so much more complicated from a special effects perspective. Right. You're going to have a guy with an exposed chest with like loose flowing clothes, yep. you know, with a visible face the entire time. And then the special effects are these crazy tentacles and whatever. And then the other part of this is he doesn't have a fucking crazy costume. He's wearing no. like a coat, a, which a, Doc Ock doesn't really have one in, in the comics. He always wears this green jumpsuit, green jumpsuit. But even here to just be like, this is this. This is the. These are the clothes he like stole when he was escaping from a hospital to like rob a bank. He's always got little glasses though, right? That's yeah, he is. He's always got glasses. He's got to have glasses. Yes, Molina looks good in those little glasses. They're usually like little triangles. They're little sideways triangles facing sure. in at each other. Um, but but the fact and a that bowl this cut. movie. Yes, which they give him a better haircut. Right, he is supposed to be dorky. He's supposed to be a little pudgy with a bowl cut. He's not supposed to be this like physical specimen. He is a mad scientist first and foremost, and he's always drawn that way. He's not drawn as someone who can like go punch for punch with Spider-Man. It's that he's smart and he's got the arms. No, I think the the ultimate Doc Ock was a little more hot and lithe yeah, and well, badass, and that was why they considered for a second the the Shaban take of like, is he a contemporary? But it, it really smart. What were you going to say, Gav? 
Well, I was going to say in general, as a big fan of the comics, one thing that I kind of, and I think Superior Spider-Man really underlined this for me, but that you kind of always felt as a comic fan was like the Green Goblin is pointed to as Spider-Man's Joker, right? Uh, yeah, as he's his, the ultimate as his Lex Luthor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in reality, reading the comics, um, I've got a lot of love for those Green Goblin stories, but the two things you have are that he's Peter's best friend's dad, and in the comics, spoiler, he kills Gwen Stacy, kills Spider-Man's girlfriend. Like, yeah, um, yeah. Right, and, and those are like huge, iconic things. But right. I think for most people who read the comics long-term, Doc Ock is quietly Spider-Man's Joker way more than Green Goblin because of what you're saying. He's number one. Yeah, I would agree with that. Just because Green Goblin is insane. Is That's insane. like all he is. Whereas, yeah, yeah, as right. you guys are just pointing out and what brings it into mind is like he... Otto Octavius at the end of the day is a scientist and that's really all Peter wants to be right. Like, right. He right. Is, They're a little more intellectually equal in that way. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's the thing that I think makes this movie sing is, is the, the villain plot and the hero plot feel so completely intertwined and yeah. not in some bullshit way where it's like, well, Otto is draining his power, but it is the fact that like when he goes to his fucking place for dinner, he sees the exact person he wants to grow up to be. Right. Peter's dream is that he's a respected scientist on the level of Otto Octavius and that he is happily married to Mary Jane Parker and that is what their home life is like. And then Otto becomes the nightmare of everything he doesn't want to become. He right. only exists as either the specter of what he wants to be in his you know, middle age or the thing he has to prevent himself from falling into. He instantly, he gets power and instantly goes insane in a way that Peter thus far hasn't. And it scares the shit out of this kid. Yeah. That's a pretty good motivation for an entire movie. Yeah, it it fucking uh, rules. Here's another thing that rules about this movie and this character and this performance. And rewatching this, I was just like, that's what's fucking missing. There is a scene in which he puts on a little hat and he goes into a bank and he breaks open a vault, and yep. he takes out big sacks with dollar signs on them, and he goes, yep. Mm, money. <laughs> yep. Well, he needs, he needs the money to buy his uh, science stuff. I know, or but this is what no, all no, no, these no, fucking no, movies... No, you don't know. What the fuck? What, does he go to a store next? It says, like, here's money bags. <laughs> Give me a bunch of metal. Like, no, it doesn't make sense. It's great. It shouldn't make sense. It's exactly, that's what I'm saying. That's I what know, I'm, saying. I'm agreeing I am, with you. I am so fucking over these things having the stakes of it is the end of the world or or even worse for me the stakes are so weird and nebulous and unclear i don't really right. understand what they're fighting for but it's treated with the chaos of it's the end of the world whereas this movie it's like here's a guy he's got an evil plan how's he going to fund it got to rob some banks how's he going to spider-man's got to hmm. stop him from coins. robbing those banks <laughs> coins and bills you guys know when you go um, when i was a kid I, I, you go to disney world right yeah. And you go to what is now Hollywood Studios, right? Correct. You, formerly MGM. Formerly MGM Studios. And this whole idea originally was like, this is like the movie world. And right. one of the things that was so fun for me as a kid when we'd go to Disney World is like you walk around their fake sets. And you take that thing with the studio tour where you're on the little tram and they show you what it's like to have like a fireball explode and then the water rush down to the can. And then you get older and, you know, I become an actor and you realize, oh, None of that. That was a theme park replicating movie sets. Those weren't real movie sets. And like the Indiana Jones stunt spectacular, if you watch it, 
presupposes like, hey guys, this is what it's like to be on the stunt crew. And you're like, no, these are people right. in Orlando, Florida. This is not really, right. you're making me. Is it weird to say that in a highly complimentary way, Sam Raimi's New York between the Spider-Man movies and Doctor Strange. Feels like a theme park. Feels like watching a movie shot at a theme park in a okay, great so way. A couple weeks ago, I was in LA. And as I do almost every single time I go to Los Angeles for any reason, I go to Universal Studios and I do the fucking backlot tour. It's my fucking favorite thing in the world. And part of it is I like to see how everyone does it differently. But they also modify the tour based on like routes and what's filming that day and what's unavailable and all that sort of shit. But I feel like at this point, I've seen most of the variables of like what they will or won't show you, right? And there's like a New York backlot set that they drive through. You always see like the same couple of angles of and it's like, look out your window. No, you didn't accidentally board a plane. This isn't real New York. It's what we call little New York here. Whatever the fuck they say, right? Right, right. And then this woman clearly goes off the script a little and she's like, can I, can I, Jerry, can we do this turn here? I want to show them this. And she pulls into like a side street of the New York back lot. And she's like, look, we don't usually show this because some other stuff is shut down today and this is available. I can show you this. This is the theater from Spider-Man 2. It's the Broadway theater Damn. where she does Importance of Being Earnest. And I got chills. Yeah, it, was, it weirdly hit me, but it also was this insane thing where I went, I have lived in New York City my entire fucking life. I know what New York City looks like. And this is the first time I ever processed that that is not a real theater. And I right. know that. I think I know that intellectually. I right. watch the movie. I'm like, there's no theater that looks like this. There's no block that looks like this. There's no block surrounding a Broadway theater that looks like this. I understand this. And no, yeah. Time, it almost looks like it's in the village or something. The, right. the block around it. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And it's meant to be like a little like West Village. Like. You think it's supposed to be like the Cherry Lane Theater or whatever? Like what, a little well, place? Well, no, no, yeah. no. I think this is the point. I think looking at it on the back lot, it's meant to be like the Cherry Lane. And right. then this movie repurposes and goes like, no, this is on 40. She's on Broadway. Broadway. Right. She's on a Broadway right. show. Yeah. But I just accept it. And, and seeing it undressed like that, it's kind of incredible. The magic of like, and Brami talked about this a lot in, in all the sort of things I've read and watched and whatever, that he's like, we had to have a really clean balance of when we're shooting real New York, you want Which to use they do, the real, a obviously, lot. yeah. You want to use the real locations that kind of feel magical. That can harmonize with the soundstage parts of New York. That can harmonize with when we have to shoot a piece in L.A. or Chicago that doubles for it. And somehow it all just fucking works. I'm really interested in your opinion, Griffin, as a native New Yorker. Because you go, yeah. there are scenes that feel like very campy sound stages, right? Where you're looking at it yep. and you're going... That's not a block in New York. Like this looks like a, this doesn't bother me. Not only does it not bother me, I walk away as someone who lived in New York for close to two decades of my life going, this feels like one of the most fucking legit representations of New York I've seen on screen. And yet there are times where it almost looks like Johnny dangerously level cartoonish, you know? But, but what's more impressive to me is that he's able to use actual New York footage and have it fit in with the cartoon footage. I mean, I am the biggest subway nerd in the world. I always get kind of huffy about weird subway representation in Hollywood movies. Yes. This movie, you know, has this whole like New York subway sequence on what is clearly the Chicago L train. Like anyone who's ever been to rules. Chicago knows. And right. It's like an elevated line that's running through Manhattan, which like hasn't happened in many, many decades and all that. And I'm still just like, that's great. What an iconic subway scene. Like, I don't yeah. care at all. Like, it's great. 
I don't care at all. It, it feels to me like Ratatouille, where I'm like, well, that's maybe the best that France has ever, that Paris has ever been captured on film. And I said that to my mom once, who's French. Your mom like, probably wanted to hit you with a frying pan. Yeah, you she was her. like, that's a fucking cartoon. It, none, of that, none of that's laid out the way it is in the movie. And I'm like, but it feels correct. Here's a question. You know, uh, I, have, I have a question that I am not smart enough to answer, but that you two nerds, I think, will rack your brains and is the type of reason I like coming on this podcast. Oh boy. Are there movies that shot in New York more practically that are regarded as New York movies that you think nail New York hard, nail New York less than Spider-Man 2 did, even though Spider-Man 2 so visibly uses sound stages in other cities as often? That's a weird one because I only remember the good ones, right? Uh-huh. Uh, I'm trying to like because obviously I immediately I thought you were setting me up for like movies yeah. shot in New York that like actually really feel like French Connection, Taking a Pelham One Two Three, right? right? Like those the, those seventies classics, uh, things like that. No, I'm you saying know? And then, movies that shot here where you think Spider Man Two out no, New York's <laughs> them, even though they were more more faithfully no, shot. And, here. and to be fair, this movie had a lot of New York photography. I do yeah. want to I do want to shout that out. Like, and this was this moment where New York was like. Made in NY was the stamp on the poster, yes. and right. they were giving the tax credits and all that, you know. Like, but yeah, I don't know, I don't know. I I, I have the answer, and maybe it's unfair, and I, I'm I'm beating a dead horse, but I it's the thing that immediately comes to mind. Both of the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies were shot more in New yeah, York yeah, than any of the Raimi percentage-wise. I think those movies are like eighty percent, if not more, shot in New York and in real streets and shit, and it just doesn't ever feel as tangible to me, both in the way they photograph the city I and agree. the way they dramatize the spirit of the city. I think, I think it misses in both. Yeah. I prefer, you know, honestly, the first uh, Holland movie is, is more New York-y uh, than, yeah. than, the, than the Garfields. Yeah, even though probably half shot in Atlanta or whatever, but at least has those cute moments like the bodega and stuff like uh, there's a few things in there where you're like okay that's nice don't see that in a movie a lot you know what else as we talk about it that i've never thought about that i wonder if you guys would agree and again another franchise that i don't have total authority to speak out to from a point of expertise but just casually the sound stagey parts of sound sam raimi's new york if they resemble anything it's almost a sesame street feel that's which is great which is really fucking crafty West on his side part. Story things like yes. that. No, you're good yeah. call. It, it's good call. really good call. crafty on his side because it's like it looks like a fake New York that looks like other fake New Yorks that we really love as New York. But that's that thing I love about him is like when he's shooting real New York, he's shooting the parts of real New York that feel like fake New York. Like I'm like the way he uses Columbia University in this, right? He's shooting on like Manetta Lane. Like he, he goes and shoots on these weird blocks that block down by where all the NYU professors live behind the gate at, at, off of Washington yes. Square. It doesn't look like the any news. other part. Yeah, right. that doesn't right. look like any other part of New York, but holy shit, is it New York-y. And he's talked about this for all three of these movies. And I, I think one and two more successfully, like talking with his uh, uh, locations team and stuff about like, we got to find the places that feel magical either the landmarks that are like hyper real or just these odd blocks that have this energy, whatever the fuck it is. It, it's yeah. I don't know. There's stuff in this movie. I mean, it's like, we, look, I could do 10 episodes on this film, right? 
it's one of these things where watching these three movies, I'm already like, I don't feel like we have enough time to talk about I mean, about we've them. broken two hours. You guys know that, right? Oh, yes, handily. I'm fully yes. aware. Oh, yeah. Yes. For sure. How long was the movie David itself? Thrill. The movie is the two hours two... and ten minutes, maybe. Is it his tops? longest film? We're going to beat it very soon. Um, Wait, is Raimi's longest? No, not even close. What's what's Raimi's longest? Well, it's probably Spider Man Three, right? That's 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 pretty oh 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 movie. yes, of course. Yes, we I'm talked sorry. about this. It's either three yeah, or yeah, Oz the Great and Powerful. They're both bloated. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thing I was going to say. Oh, there's there's like I I just the way these first two movies are like imprinted on my brain, right? And I'm sort of obsessed with so many little details of them. There are things talking about the hyper reality of of this film, right? And the sort of like movie logic that he operates on. You now have, like, they perfected the art of, we know exactly how to build a superhero suit to make it look good on camera, to let the actor move, and then how to augment it with CGI so you never see the, you know, the uh, unappealing aspects of, of the thing, right? There's something to the amount of times in these movies that there has to be the cheats. And I, even when I was watching these films as, like, a 14-year-old whatever, I would fixate on them, and not in a bad way. But whenever he needs to take his mask off or put his mask on, you're like, this costume is absolutely designed where there is no separation. There is no way that the top part removes from this bodysuit. It is impossible. The tension of it, there's no zipper, there's no seam, there's no nothing. And anytime he has to pull it off, it's clearly hidden in a cut where now they've switched to the suit where they have to cut to it when the fingers are already underneath it. Or when he's putting it on, the second it gets down over his jaw, they cut away, you know? Mm -hmm. And then the whole shape of his head is changed. Right. Because it's not just putting a mask on. They have this weird plastic vacuum form thing so that he has the perfect Ditko Spider-Man skull so it's not just Tobey Maguire's features smushed underneath. And every time I, like, accept it. And similarly, when he's delivering pizzas, the fucking opening of this movie, a thing we need to talk about a lot more now. Yes, I, yes, we do. We need to go through some of this movie. Yes, go ahead. This was me smoothly uh -huh. swinging into yeah. a transition of the pizza okay. thing. Mm -hmm. the, the pizza boxes are so beautifully art directed where one in the middle stack is just so smushed. I love it. And every it time he puts so it happy. down on Bones' desk, right, I look at it and I'm like, this one box in the middle is so smushed that you just can't even imagine how bad that pizza looks inside. It's so fucked up. But the other ones, the ones above and below it, are still have a reasonable integrity. But he knows that's the funniest one to just have this totally warped corner. I, have, I just have to say on my end, and I think I speak for a lot of listeners here, maybe not. Yeah. The fact that we've been talking this long and you both just said, now we have to actually start going through the movie? That's astounding. That's astounding. People love when we do that. People love that. They always tweet like, ah, ha, ha, they start talking about the movie two hours in. We've been talking about the movie the whole it. time. We've talked about lots of scenes in this movie, you know, yeah. that, that pop. But the pizza scene, mm -hmm. just the absolutely outrageous audacity of him doing all of that. And it's so much fun. And the, his, it's, it's against the clock. It's this classic Spider-Man thing. And then he puts the pizzas down and he says, pizza time. Like, like she's supposed to be like, oh yeah, great. This looks good. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. It it makes me laugh every single time. An incredible performance from Emily Deschanel. Emily Deschanel well. chewing the gum, so funny. Uh, what's the guy's name from Chappelle's Show? Uh, uh, Donnell like, Rawlings. Donnell Rawlings. Hey, yeah. he stole that guy's pizza. And isn't the guy who gets the slice webbed Scott out Spiegel. of his hand? It's Scott Spiegel who co-wrote Evil Dead. Yeah, Evil he, Dead he's yeah. he's one of Sam's guys. Yes. 
Uh, there's so many guys like that in like one, you know, one scene. Like you got Brent Briscoe coming back as oh. the guy, the garbage man who finds the costume. Yes. Uh, you got obviously Joel McHale is the bank teller. So good. Hal Sparks. You got the only film to have two different talk soup hosts. Right, Hal Sparks is the guy who asked him about the costume, right? In the elevator. In the elevator. Yeah, Let's yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. We can't. See, we we need to put some research in that. Can we just say presumably the only film to have two talk soup hosts? Because I don't want to create any controversy by claiming it has two talk soup hosts, and then we find out. Phil Lamar. Phil Lamar. Gethard uh, shouted him out. Phil Lamar just leans into frame, puts his hand on Tobey Maguire's chest, and that seems to be the extent of Phil Lamar's participation. Obviously, the great Dylan Baker. Oh, Dylan Baker. Well, yeah. Great. I, great. I once acted I, in Anchorman 2. I met Dylan Baker. Oh, what a God. great guy. What a the great guy. I forgot he's guy. in that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. A great dude. And then I, I years later was at something and he was there and came up to me. He's like, how you been, man? I was like, oh, wow. you're one of those guys. You remember people like me. That'll, one of those that'll get you guys. acting work for decades. Uh, Joy, Joy Bryant, you know, who went on to have a you know pretty big career. She's in, she's the one who says "Go Spider Man Go," right? Daniel uh, Day Kim. Uh, uh, Daniel Day Kim is right. one of the assistants. Um, you know, just a lot of guys. Uh, yeah, Peter McRobbie. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's one of those things where like almost everyone with a line pops. I worked on it. One of the first movies I ever worked on. Uh, one of the other dudes in it, I realized had like a really. Uh, uh, large child acting career. Uh, and I knew I recognized him for something. I was going through all of his credits and I couldn't figure out what it was. And then I realized Mark John Jeffries, he's the kid who witnesses Peter Parker do the flip. Uh, yes, sure. Right. And goes, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. my mom always told me, but I never believed Eat your her. vegetables. Right. Feels yeah, yeah, weird yeah, right. that we haven't shouted out Asif Manvi yet. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Aziz, uh, you know, that's Joe's Pizza in the Village, right? Uh, which is... Uh, it moved still, three still, doors it moved, it down. Moved, it moved slightly, but it's it's, it's around the, the corner spot. in the same block with the Spider-Man Two sign. Can I just say, I think it's another thing this movie does so well that most sequels fuck up. Is Asif Manvi not putting Asif Manvi in at the beginning? No, I think a lot of sequels fuck up this sort of presumed. We made the first movie. You liked it. You liked all our characters. Off to the races. Let's go. And I do think even if you're amped for a fucking sequel. Movies still have to like win you back over. They have they have to sort of reacclimate you to the characters and their struggles and whatever. Here's the thing I don't like about what a, the sort of MCU format is usually yeah. the first action sequence that leads off the movie will be them fighting a sort of B tier villain from their yes. rogues gallery uh, that we know will be easily defeated, right? Kind of a you know it fucking Doctor Strange fights Shumagorath and you're sort of like okay yeah this is just him kind of warming up on the speed bag getting everyone back on board but it's kind of nothing because you're sort of like okay okay get to whatever the real plot is right like this is right. our little our little aperitif and this instead it's like spider-man's big challenge after by the way the most incredible opening credits of all time with these beautiful painted flashback visuals by alex ross and all that you know like but but speaks to this fucking like 2.0 approach to this film where it's like opening credits first movie good how do we make them better alex ross Alex Ross, like spicing everything up. But then it's like, yeah, what's Spider-Man's big challenge as this movie begins? He's got to move this, this pizza 50 blocks in 10 minutes. Like, you know, that's really fucking Peter Parker challenge. And, he, and also just the simplicity of like, you start once again with the mirroring of the fucking uh, opening narration, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, this yep. close up of Kirsten Dunst that turns into the billboard that immediately establishes some years have passed. Her career has changed. 
everything's refocused on the girl of his dreams, but he can't fucking be with her. And then we're immediately snapped back into reality. He almost gets hit by a fucking car. He's a goddamn pizza delivery boy, and he's right. late. Well, it, he stole that guy's pizza. I really love what you guys like. It's really smart to point out. Like they found a way to skip the hero of the week moment or the villain of the week moment. Yes. right. And they replaced it with pizza, which is so New Yorky and so fun and so charming. And she, and you let him be Spider Man at minute two, like he puts on the suit immediately. And I would say some franchises fall into a trap where they try to play against type to reestablish that. And I don't yes. love that. Like three does that, and I think it fucks the movie over. Well, you know, like Grant Morrison pointed out, like it's too easy to do Dark Superman. Everybody's doing it now. I might argue, you know, the Star Wars franchise has okay. maybe had some all missteps right, where right, they right. started cutting you off. Cutting you off. No, but okay, Spider-Man can, Three, we've talked about opens yeah, with him being like, things are going pretty great. Everyone loves Spider-Man, and you immediately are like, I don't feel comfortable in this movie. I know they're trying to subvert it, but like this is just immediate reestablish reinvestment in. This is Peter Parker's whole fucking deal. It's a classic Peter Parker thing. He's got four quarters. You know, he's got a hundred chips and he has three plates that he needs to have them on. Right. And he's constantly moving them around. Like, you know, romantic Peter, job and science Peter, superhero Peter. Like, and he's just, he can never, you know, he can never be a hundred percent devoted to one thing. I'll actually say too, like connected directly back to Sam Raimi, uh, more tangential to Spider-Man. It's one of the things, multiverse of madness, one of the things that's very interesting. Because MCU, I think you guys are correctly pointing out. There are tropes, there are cliches. It's kind of its own genre of movie now and some of it's getting mm -hmm. eye-rolly, but to subvert Wanda into being the villain and to say, we're going to do a whole Disney Plus series that shows her mental fracturing and then she's mm -hmm. going to be brought back. And I was really impressed of like, they don't fuck around. Like they don't spend the whole first act and then show you her turn. Like, she messes up one thing and he's like, what, Wanda? And she's like, you never said that name. Oh, I'm the most badass fucking person you deal with. I'm like, I love that. I love that they can dedicate a whole Disney Plus series to basically go, we're going to justifiably turn this hero into a villain. Now, in a world that doesn't have as many strong female heroes as you'd like, it's kind of a shame. But right. Elizabeth Olsen kind of crushes it. And I go, what a cool layered way to do something that's the opposite of what we're saying. Yeah, dedicate a whole TV series to it. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. It's the benefit of telling a 45-part story. It's like crazy. That. You can go do something off to the side, but of course then you have the irritation of like, by the way, you better watch this thing on Disney Plus before you see the movie. Right. Which, you know, it's understandable. Some people are like chafing at that idea. But if you do, it was pretty fucking cool to go, oh, they don't need to burn a minute of exposition on this because they did it elsewhere. And now we can just have Scarlet Witch and Doctor Strange fucking fight and she's badass. Pretty cool. The opposite, the opposite of the small pizza moment in Spider Man. Well, and and this movie at large, where it's like this film actually does work as a complete self-contained statement. Yeah, like yeah. even just how economically it sets up everything at the beginning, even it down to its reintroduction of Harry and everything. Like you can watch this without having seen the first one. Yeah, And this movie, as much as it sets things up for another movie, actually feels resolved in terms of its own thematic and emotional concerns by the end of this film. And I think the more these stories become interdependent on other stories, even if it is impressive that you're able to do certain things like that, like that's the silver lining, the more I go back to this is like, remember when this was just like a two-hour fucking movie that felt complete? It is. Um, David, I wonder if you have the same feeling. Like, we are living in a world where, like, we grew up on comic books and now they're being sold back to us for hundreds of billions of dollars, right? Indeed. But you and I are also the parents of young kids and we're pop mm. culture 
obsessives in mm-hmm. our own way. And I sit here and I go, man, what a cool thing that I get to watch all these movies with Cal again someday. And I get to watch him watch them for the first time. Absolutely. It is already <coughs> so exciting, this, the idea of doing that. David's daughter is watching Toy Story. It's the proudest I've ever been of David's daughter. Now, mm-hmm. Spider-Man 2 is one of the few films that I can go, oh, he can see. He doesn't even necessarily need to see Spider-Man 1 and he'll still get most of this yeah. and why it's yeah. cool and fun. Yeah. It's pretty much all there. The Norman Osborn yeah. callback at the end will be horrifically confusing to him. The James sure. Franco stuff. But maybe sure. the only thing, like true. Pretty much the yeah. only thing. Everything else is there. The MCU, I tell you, I do watch. Like watching watching the newest Spider Man, I'm going, holy shit. Am I? I don't even. I feel like I watched some of those Andrew Garfield movies on a plane and got through them. Yeah. Am I going to have to watch the Andrew Garfield movies with Cal for him to? Spirit, Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ. That's, that's the annoying. thing. You can't even skip over the failures now because they're reclaiming the failures or whatever. Yeah. The only stuff they let you skip over is like the Edward Norton Hulk and the Inhumans TV show. And now even that's kind of been brought back with Black yeah, Bolt. Even that's like, actually, maybe you should watch Inhumans. I'm maybe like, you should throw that I, out. I'm not watching. I'm joking. I'm joking. I can't do the, it. The thing this movie gets at, which I don't know if it's even really possible for any of these modern movies to get at anymore. And I, I'm not even saying just uh, MCU is that feeling of being a kid and picking up a comic book and reading it and going like, God, what a great issue. That was such a fun read. And then you know it's going to be a month until a new issue comes out. But it's a very different sense of satisfaction than when an issue ends with a cliffhanger and you're like, holy shit, what happens next? That feeling of like finishing an issue and going, that was great. I just had a great time reading that. And I'm looking forward to whatever happens next. But I feel resolved. Mm. I do think it's good when our properties that are aimed at kids slash youthful excitement allow us to feel that youthful excitement i agree i agree i do think that should generally be oh no actually i'm seeing here that superhero uh, movies should actually be incredibly adult and rated r and involve bones being broken and you know moral sins being committed i'm not gonna name property it's some of the star wars movies to me have made me think a little (laughs) I'm so glad to hear you guys agree because I feel like Star Wars has dropped the ball a couple times. So hearing that they agree with me, that's cool. We don't even really need to talk about it. After the pizza sequence, we have um, Aunt May's apartment. Aunt May is losing her home. Uh, She's being evicted, so she's having kind of a uh, yard sale and all that stuff. Yeah, right? You like reestablish the three on. most yep. important characters in his life. It's it's yeah. the birthday party he's late to. Um. He's late to this birthday party. Mary Jane and Harry are there. He's kind of estranged from both of them in different ways. Gethard is stroking his beard like a fucking cartoon villain. He's like giggling and sitting back in his chair. You know, he's just so proud that he fucking filibustered Star Wars in again. I just love Spider. I just like Spider-Man. I like talking about Spider-Man. That's all that's going on. I'm not going to be somebody who's going to sit here and gloat about anything I may or may not have done. I like Spider-Man a lot. The chocolate cake scene into the yard sale scene to me is something. Those those are two sequences that a lot of the MC movie, MCU movies try to consistently have, and almost never hit as no as it always feels a little more perfunctory when they're doing stuff like that in the MCU. And the chocolate cake stuff is so subtle, which then allows Rosemary Harris's speech to be fucking Shakespearean level words. Yes, mush. Yeah, to have right to have the one scene that's no dialogue and one that's like all this florid dialogue and both work. Ursula Dikovich, obviously an absolute legend. Shout her out. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
the best. Maybe you should just stick with Ursula, Peter. Who knows? Uh, you know, she's she's total total babe. That scene too, though. It's just, hey, you want some chocolate cake? And for him to go, yeah. And then her response is just maybe a glass of milk and, too. Yeah. And it's that I simple. Mean, she's not wrong. That's they, well, go, also, they go well it's, together. It's that thing of like the the absurd like the absurd comic nature of how much the universe constantly keeps on fucking with Peter, right? Like, it kind of exemplified for me in when he drops his books at Columbia and the backpacks won't stop hitting him in the head. Yeah. And on the commentary, they talked about that the extras, because it's Spider-Man 2 and now he's a big fucking star, were, like, too um, tentative. They, like, didn't want to hit him that hard. And Raimi was like, it's not funny unless you hit him really hard with the backpack. And they, like, didn't want to do it. They were worried about getting yelled at. So they had to do so many goddamn takes. And McGuire was like, it was pissing me off that they weren't being more aggressive because it was taking longer and I ended up getting hit more. And the solution to it was that Raimi just walked into frame and did it himself. And that one, like, knock to the head that's really brutal in the middle of it is Raimi. And he's like, there, I got my fucking take. But that sense of the universe of, like, he cannot bend down without someone smacking him in the noggin, right? Like, everyone just fucking shits on this guy everything just like funnels down to him constantly and then he gets a piece of chocolate cake <clears throat> just this moment of of just genuine kindness for no reason um well she likes him she yeah but, uh, but you know what i'm saying it's a selfless thing she thinks he's a cutie but like she's not trying to manipulate him no she's not she's giving him a moment a little respite there because obviously yes what's going on in this movie is throughout everything Peter is having this kind of internal moral or, you know, whatever, like his subconscious failing that his powers just leave him. It's not like one of those classic things of like, oh, he encountered a power draining machine or there's someone who can suck his powers away. It's just that if he's not bought in to his mission as Spider-Man, he simply cannot be Spider-Man, right? That's the best way to put it. But also, like, Spider-Man 1, the origin story is so tied in puberty in so many ways. And Raimi, like, consciously sort of, like, underlines those things for comedic effect in the first movie. Uh, And this one is sort of, like, him getting to, like, even though he's a guy in his 20s, it's, like, middle-aged sexual dysfunction. That whole scene with the doctor is, is, you know, they're, like, they're, they're drawing out the comparison. Absolutely. The doctor played by by that guy. Ah, fuck, I can't remember. Anyway, I like that he has like the tie-dye shirt, right? Doesn't the yeah, doctor the hippie the doctor. Uh, anyway, uh, we've got Dr. Octavius. We mentioned that sort of opening scene where Peter meets him and he's like, you know, uh, Kurt, uh, Kurt Connor says, you're brilliant, but you're lazy, right? You know, the sort yeah. of, which you sort of feel for Peter where you're like, you know what? He's fucking Spider-Man, which is again, the classic thing. He can never say it. He can never be like, well, the reason I seem a little scatterbrained is because I'm a famous superhero, but right. he can never say it. He can never enjoy his heroism. There's a thing they said in the commentary that the original plan for this movie, or one of the 15 drafts or whatever, was that uh, Harry was going to hire Dr. Octopus to find Spider-Man from like the beginning of the movie almost. Right. Like that was sort of his main drive. It was a sort of Craven-esque hunt. Obviously, kind of Harry is tied up in him and that he's funding his experiments and all that. Right. right. Yeah, but, uh, um, you know, but what is it? Nobel Prize, Otto, Nobel Prize. That's his thing. Avi Arad gives himself the credit for this and who knows where it belongs, but that he was like, ultimately just felt a lot more interesting to have Peter and Harry be able to talk about things face to face 
Yeah, like, sure. Not and to have the a weird tension of those scenes. I the thing I think Franco does well is that energy of the guy who's trying to be chill has constantly had one too many drinks, right? It, and just shifts the energy of the conversation to uncomfortable territory way too fast, way too frequently. Harry knows that everyone is kind of talking about him in worried voices behind his back. He's got that right. energy, right? You know. Um, now he's gotten pushed into running a company that he never really wanted to run, and right. he's playing the role of like tech fucking Charismatic. asshole. Yeah, exactly. But he's top of the world. Of, what does he say, Otto? Like top of the world, Otto? Yeah, and Nobel Prize. I don't Nobel know. Nobel like, Prize. Nobel, Nobel Prize. Prize. He keeps um, on like. Yeah. yeah. Um, experiment goes wrong. Obviously, the most incredible thing about the experiment going wrong scene is the her screaming face reflected in the glass <laughs> shot. That is just so good. Uh, it's yeah. so so maximalist and so. I just feel like dorky, you know, like people yeah. would be afraid to try and something also, like that now. This and is then, the exact amount of explanation I want. He's created a, a new form of energy that is so volatile. He had to make robot arms to handle it. He put AI in the robot arms so he didn't have to control them entirely. Uh, and then the chip breaks and it makes him crazy. Makes like that's, him crazy. Uh, that's all I want. Why, why is this happening? I don't, that's exactly as much time as I need spent on this. Our, uh, our conversation is reminding, underlining something before I was saying, you know, thinking so much about how I really love Tom Holland and I think Tom Holland has nailed Peter Parker. Mm -hmm. But this movie, as we discuss it, it's becoming clear to me. Tom Holland has nailed Peter Parker harder than anybody else did. This movie nailed Spider-Man harder than anything sure. has done before Which, since. Right, yeah, right. The characterization of Spider-Man. We were talking before about one thing that jumps out is I love a fragile Aunt May. I love an old Aunt May. I love a mm -hmm. she could, her heart could stop beating with one shock Aunt May. Another failing of the MCU, but what were they going to do with all those movies established it? Going back and rewatching a movie where Spider-Man has no mentors, like he tries to call Happy Hogan all the time in the MCU and they do a lot of bits yeah. about how Happy doesn't even pick up the phone. Like, but he has Tony Stark. He has Iron Man. He has that tech. Yeah, it's the worst thing about this It's stuff. very limiting. It's very limiting yes. to who Spider-Man is. Spider-Man living in a shitty apartment where it's like he goes outside and it starts raining. And yes. he can no longer crawl up the walls. And who is he ever going to talk to about this? Because who would ever treat it? Kite. There's also yeah. just this fucking thing with those movies where it's like Spider-Man is like a STEM icon now, right? Where he's like, I'm just like a dorky computer programmer who 3D prints weapons, or you know, I don't know. There's just something about it that he's a little too happy. Go lucky. Yeah, like I think things I go know. a little too well for him. He's got a little too much going for himself in those he's got spider-man as a character has a little too much swag yeah they try to do the oh you know just when he thinks he's got his good he's brought low but like you know anyway um what are some other things in spider-man 2 wait 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 shout out to the tentacles okay come on the tentacles yeah. in this are so good the design is good they look good as hell they can light I, a cigar I, for him they can light a cigar for him. I'm like, I watch this and I'm Take like, off his sunglasses. I like it when they do delicate things. Catch a glass yeah. that's falling. That's oh, so yeah. yeah. I don't want, a like, I don't want to have a computer control my mind, but I could be into rocking tentacles. Like, I don't on believe off, I you when you say that you don't want a computer to control your mind. I don't believe you. Witch hacking. David, I know you're like fucking fast and furious I, car trying to get through the movie as quickly bit. as possible, but I want to go back to a thing because it's an echo of, of my, one of my favorite scenes. The, the second backyard throwing out the trash, mm -hmm. Peter mm -hmm. and Mary Jane conversation at the beginning of this movie. Mm -hmm. 
I, I think because you started with the specter of like, here she is. Now she's on billboards all around the city. She's on Broadway. And I've made this decision to be a sad, mopey bastard. I won't allow myself to be with her. Right. But I think part of that is this belief Peter has sort of selfishly that like, well, and she's going to continue to hold this flame for me as well. We will be sad lovers who are destined to be alone. Right. And then he walks into this party. Harry's there. Harry's got his weird energy. Aunt May's putting on a brave face on the fact that she can't afford the house. This is one of the scenes where I really like Franco's choices, by the way. Great, great performance from Franco, that entire scene. And then MJ's just being super normal and friendly. And then they go out, and it's this weird, like, echoing of, oh, look at us. We're no longer in high school. We've moved out. But, like, here we are back in this backyard again. Remember the first time we talked where they actually start to, like, speak to each other for the first time, and she drops the fucking hammer on, like, I'm dating somebody. She's dating J. Jonah Jameson's son. He's just got to deal with that. She's got a line reading here. He's a famous I, astronaut. I love And then so his much. asshole boss is there yelling at him to take pictures in the moment he yeah. finds out. It's pretty great. But there's the thing where, where she says, I'm seeing someone, by the way. Like, she throws it off as just... I've been trying to avoid dropping this on you the whole time, right? End of the conversation. I've been seeing someone, by the way, and he goes, like, like a boyfriend? And she goes, like, like I like him. And she's got, like, this, like, old fucking movie star lilt on it. Like, she sounds like fucking, like, do you know what I'm saying? I, she's so good in this movie. She's and like I a like Judy really, Holiday really delivery I, or something. I, I really love Dunstan. All three Spider-Mans and I love Dunstan in general, but I do think this is the movie that gives her just more meat on the bone and like she just she's just phenomenal. I mean, this is the same year as Eternal Sunshine. Like it's when it was really like, wow, like this is such an important actor. It's another thing they said in the commentary is they, because they were like all these drafts kept on going back to this love triangle idea. And they went to her at some point and they went like, we can't figure this out. Give us the answer. Uh huh. Would you rather if there's another guy in the picture that it's a bad relationship or a good relationship? And she was like, good relationship. It's so much more interesting dramatically if the guy is good, if he's a nice guy. The guy is nice. And he, there's absolutely nothing wrong with him, and he's there for her. And there's you know, an the best scene, pathway for her to live a happier life, an easier life, at the very least. The great cinematic shorthand is just her kissing him on the couch Ugh. upside down, and you know him being like, "Wow," and her being like, "Yeah, yeah, uh huh." And you can just tell that she's just like, "Right, this is never going to be quite." But as exciting especially for me. being JJJ's son, which is just an incredible, incredibly smart decision to be able to bake. JJJ into more scenes, which is what everyone in America wants. Yeah, right? it is true. It is true. Just give us double JJJ. Like everyone in the commentary talks about the most exciting thing in this movie was just coming back and knowing, well, unequivocally, this guy fucking hits. Everyone knew that work. In the office works. Just give him as much of that as we can. Like you look at his performance at JJJ. And it's like the equivalent of watching an MMA fight where the bell rings and one guy just walks up and smashes the shit out of the person across from him and yes. the match is over 10 seconds later. It's a Ronda Rousey. It is, it's like a it fucking, is so yeah. good. It is just a yeah. fucking blitzkrieg of hilarious choices and great acting. It's just every fucking I mean, gesture. This yeah. is him laughing at the advance, right? Uh, yes. Where he laughs, 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 and then goes right back to serious. He's like, serious? No. What do I pay you for? You know, like, you know. All that. Love anytime he nails that. But I think making this guy the son of that dude, right? Sure. Who is yeah, such well, a fucking nuisance to Spider-Man and to Peter Parker. 
and then casting this like unbelievably handsome dude, making him a fucking astronaut American Daniel hero. Gillies, but also right, having him not be someone that you're rooting for uh, to go away. Like you're like, ah, fuck this guy. He's rude. Right. It's it's such a wise choice to just be like, he's a nice guy. It'd be so easy to make him a fucking arrogant asshole or sort of glib or unattentive. You no, know, he's fine. He's just boring. He's boring. And the same thing with Peter uh, deciding to quit as being Spider-Man. It's like you you have the very hokey, very sweet, very lovable raindrops keep falling on my head sequence, yeah. right? Where it's like, he doesn't dislike being just Peter Parker, right? Like there's a lot he actually enjoys about it, but he has the thing in the back of his mind always of like, people are getting beat up in alleyways without me. You know what I mean? Yes. Like where it's like the, the, the great responsibility. He's not able to finish the hot dog, you know? There's something coming to mind right now because we're talking about how great Dunst is in this movie and she really, it yeah. really, you watch it back, you're like, I, I hate to say it because it's probably some sexist instinct related to like nerd culture. But I mm -hmm. feel like I remember dialogue of her being hammy in this and I watched it back today. I'm like, she's fucking awesome. She makes it all She same. is so good. Yeah. And I think she's very keyed into the old timey sort of romantic nature yes. of her scenes. The, yeah. the, the sphere, the sort of temperature they exist. Now, I hate to keep comparing it to the modern stuff, but there's something that really stood out to me in one scene. A scene that I'd forgotten. And then when it came up, I was like, holy shit, it got me again. It made me remember how good this scene is. You look at MCU now, right? And they play with the idea of if anybody figures out who Peter is, it's a disaster, right? And they do it. Yeah. Mysterio reveals it and it leads to, he goes to Dr. Strange. It sucks Maguire and Garfield mm -hmm. through and all these villains. And it's super fun, right? And then leads to the scene at the end where Zendaya is working and she no longer remembers him. And he remembers, he realized that he has made this choice that if he really loves her, she can never know. But you think about how much work they put in for that, right? Whereas in Spider-Man 2, they do the same thing by going in the total opposite direction where she she decides she doesn't want this marriage. She runs, mm -hmm. she tracks down with Peter and they, without her even needing to say it, she has come to have the sneaking suspicion. Oh, I think I know who you are and I know how much you really do right. care about me. Give me one kiss. There's something I need to find out. There's something I need to see. However she phrases it. And as he's sitting there freezing up, considering whether he should go for this kiss, his spider sense comes back, car yeah. through the window, slight yeah. slow motion like not even full slow motion like a a yeah. very cool affectation he fucking jumps dives over her and then leans back and that sound effect as the tire just barely misses his face and you go man those are two different choices about spider-man right and both that i loved but in a way that again is showing me this movie hasn't been beaten yet like one yeah. movie where the idea of him finding out leads to all these people coming through porters, portals and multiverses and this, and we got to erase it and Dr. Strange and you need more heroes, more villains, all this. Whereas this one just goes, I guess she wants to kiss me, but I can't kiss her. Cause if I, if I let somebody in guys like Doc Ock are always trying to fucking kill me and, it, and she's going to get fucking killed. And that's more pure Spider-Man a hundred times out of a hundred to me. To this point, Spider-Man was the last character in the MCU who had a secret identity. Yeah. And now they've blown that up and then they did a whole movie to unblow it up and what have you. Right. right? And this this just shows you why you need that in a simple. Absolutely. This is, it's like a, it's another chocolate cake moment. Sometimes it can just be that simple. 
But also, in the doctor scene, he gives it up pretty quickly, right? He's trying to do this thing of, I had a dream, actually. It was my friend right. who yeah, had a dream. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, and yeah, then yeah. the doctor just sort of goes like, okay, we don't have to talk about it. If you feel like you can't be Spider-Man anymore, like there's this quiet admission of like, you're safe with me, right? Yeah, yeah Dr. All Pitchfuck. Right, the citizens on the fucking subway see him, give him his mask back, and go, we won't tell anybody, you know? That there's this sort of, like, understanding with people, and I think Raimi even admits as much, but in any of the scenes with Harry, MJ, or Aunt May, which are obviously the three big emotional relationships for Peter, I feel like in any given moment, you question whether they know. The yeah. actors are always towing this line when when Aunt May is giving that speech. Yeah. Harris is especially great at that. Yeah. And but also as a viewer, it's really fun to realize if any of the three of those figures is out at any given point, it's a big fucking deal that's going to change everything. Well, and like not to go out of order here as David tries to barrel us to the end of this episode, but you want to talk about Dunt's performance here. The thing she fucking nails that puts her in the Hall of Fame for me, her long, unbroken camera track in reaction shot to Peter turning around as he's holding the collapsing warehouse on his back and she sees his face for the first time is incredible. She does like fucking seven emotions. You see her go through 20 different thoughts. It's all wordless. And it's incredible. And what's amazing about it is it's at first the shock, right? The sort of stunned. I mean, not only is she in this insane, intense environment with life and death stakes and whatever, but just like this astonishing thing to see. But gradually she gets to the like, of course, you know, you watch it all play out on her face where it's the of course, who else could it have been? It had to be him the entire time. And then the sort of, as it lands on her, the understanding of why he has acted the way he always has. The full sort of retroactive understanding of their entire dynamic for the last couple of years. It's like heartbreaking. Yeah, it's incredible. She's really good. She's really fucking good. And you know, you know what? One, th- one thing that's very fun for me about this conversation is, and one thing that is really brilliant about them bringing all the Spider-Mans back in the new movie is one thing that they do have in common, all of them, that they never betrayed. Whereas they've turned the dials on some other things where you go, as a Spider-Man fan my whole life, I go, what's that? Uh, They always let Peter be an idealist who's naive Mm -hmm. and wants the right things. Even when he's giving up, it's because he's sitting here going, it's impossible to do this. He never turns outright cynical, right? He's defeated. Mm -hmm. But he's always naive. He's always wide-eyed. He is always, at the end of the day, like a kid from an outer borough going into the big city because he thinks he, he has the ability to make something things better, and therefore he should try to go make it better. And uh, it's another thing that, you know, I just look at some franchises who let their farm boys turn into cynics, and I just go, it's just a shame, isn't it? It's just a shame to have okay. your farm boy all right, archetype. All right, all right, I'm cutting you off. I don't care. I don't care about Star Wars. We're not talking about Star Wars. I wasn't. Two I never hours said forty Star- minutes. Did I say Star Wars? Okay. I don't think I ever said right. Star Wars. Now, yeah, uh-huh. I said farm and boy so- archetype who turned cynical, <laughs> and I don't always love that. F- I'll finish the thought a, later. A thing, okay. a thing I really like about the construction of this movie is in yep. the middle, Peter Parker stops being Spider Man by mm-hmm. choice, essentially. He's sick yeah. of it. He wants to rebalance his I'm life. I'm Spider-Man. No more. Uh, and yes, crime does rise. But Dr. Octopus is not really on the loose. 
No. Because he is busy building his secret lab. Now, is that silly comic book logic? Yes. Does it yes. make sense to me? Yes. Yes. I love it's it. It's fine. And he doesn't reemerge really until he's like, okay, now I need the titrium, the tritrium, whatever it's called. Right. And that's when, and you know, that's when Harry's like, well, you got to get fucking Spider-Man. You got to get Peter Parker. You know, that's when we're into act three. Um, but like, I think this movie does a good job having downtime, like having, you know, having this like, yeah, uh, you know, it's another really important scene too in, in that, in that sort of uh, uh, level. Um, the the burning building scene, which is such a clear echo of you have that in the first. The first first movie movie has a wonderful, yeah, absolutely. That burn the burning building scene is great in this one, right? So you have this scene that's a real test of his heroism in the first movie. The cops hate him. When you come back out here, we're arresting you. I'm not coming back. He goes in. Greek Goblin's there. He gasses him, right? But he wins. He saves everyone. He gets the baby out of the building. He reunites with the mother. Everything's fine. This movie. He's been trying not to be fucking Spider-Man. He walks past the people getting mugged in the alleyway, the cop cars, the sirens blaring over things. He finally sees the burning building. Enough's enough. He tries to do it as Peter. And he goes in and he saves the girl from the building. And it's tough, but he fucking does it. And he comes out and there's a sense of victory. Maybe he can do this. Maybe he can use his powers to help people without having to build an entire fucking identity around it. Mm -hmm. And just when it's there in front of him, he doesn't resist it. And then they're just in the background, the fireman going like, yeah, unfortunately Someone we lost On the too. fourth floor, yeah. yes. Fuck it. He's realized Peter's not sucks. enough and Spider-Man is and it sucks. There's, there are certain things he cannot do as Peter. That Robinson. is fundamentally why Spider-Man will always rule. The X-Men will always rule because their origin story is we were born that way. We're born different mm-hmm. and people fucking hate us for it. And there's no way around that. Whereas we'll never be, we'll never be part of society. We'll never, you know. we will never, we will try as hard as we can to fight for and defend society. You're, you're going to always find a reason to say that I'm a fucking hateable piece of shit. And everybody, you know, a lot of people can identify with. And Spider-Man, so much of what the core of it is like, hey, like, it sucks. It sucks that you're Spider-Man, but you are. So you got to go be Spider-Man now. And we know that that fucking sucks for you. It sucks. It sucks to be Spider-Man. Go do it. It sucks. It, it's going to suck. You'll have some highs, but it's mostly going to be you taking tomatoes to the face. Look, right. obviously there's the whole thing where he puts his suit in the garbage, you know, the Spider-Man no more. There's the whole thing where uh, yeah. the, the J. Jonah Jameson gets the suit. My favorite sequence in the movie. It's my favorite comic book sequence of all time is when Jonah is smoking the cigar, he's finally oh. turned ruminative, right? He's finally yes. willing to admit, you know what? Maybe I was wrong. Maybe he was a good guy. Maybe I shouldn't have been so hard on him, right? He's looking at the suit and all that. He's giving the sad monologue. Um, and then he turns around, the suit gets stolen, right? Replaced by the note, okay? Mm-hmm. The, the perfect web all of, you know, that it just appears on the wall, you know, within one second, the note saying courtesy, your friendly neighborhood, Spider-Man. Yeah. Jonah flips right back to old Jonah. He's a thief. He's a menace. I, blah, 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 right. We love this cut to he looks out the window. He sees the open window. He raises his arm. He says, I hate you, Spider-Man. A newspaper spins into frame saying he's back. Spider-Man swings through the newspaper (laughs) and breaks it. Then he swings through the air, through the skyscrapers of New York, being joyful Spider-Man again, at least for a minute. It's wonderful to behold. It's 
all great. This is all a reflection in Dr. Octopus's <laughs> sunglasses, which we now zoom out of as Dr. Octopus climbs a clock tower ready for his third act villainy. And then they begin the most spectacular action sequence in comic book history. It's never been beaten because it's this straight to the train. It's them yeah. tossing building shit at each other with Ant-Man, you know, like with all this insanity, I have, right? Like, you know, I have to tell your listeners right now that we are all on Zoom because Griffin is, is suffering. Griffin has COVID. Just COVID. you explaining all of that, Griffin, Ben, and I sat there with shit-eating grins on our faces just hearing you explain that. That's how I fun know. that and is. I've seen it a million it's times. rapturous shit. I, I've, I've, you know, seen this movie a million times, and you could just watch that sequence on YouTube anytime you yeah. want, obviously, in this modern day and age. Anytime you see it. You can't believe you. You forget that it's all just like bang, 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 and it's so much better because you had that that forty five minutes of downtime. Yeah, because you know you you were missing him for so long. And, and can I give some credit quickly to Alvin Sargent again? Sure. In our mind's eye, that Jameson moment you talk about is obviously a big purple monologue, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Here is the entirety of it. Okay. Sure. I drove Spider-Man away. My God, he was a hero. Spider-Man truly was an asset to this city. He was a criminal. That's who he is. A burglar. Right. He stole my suit. I want Spider-Man. I want Spider-Man. He That's really the draws it out. of it. Right, right, right. You have at one moment Ted Raimi saying something and he sort of makes a face, right? Like, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to circle back to something David said before of Doc Ock goes off and builds a lab. Is that comic yep. booky logic that we're willing to put up with a little bit? I would actually argue that. I would actually argue that when we first meet him, right? When Harry first brings Peter over to Doc Ock, he's like, hey, kid, I don't really have time for this. I need, I have too much science shit to be doing right now. Like, right out of the mm -hmm. gate, he was like, my whole thing is I want to do science shit and I got to get it done fast and I know how to do it better than anybody, so I'm going to go do it. So I actually think it makes perfect sense that he's like, I have these enhanced abilities. Let me, oh, sure. let me go off and build this crazy lab because that's always who yeah. I am. And these, I'm saying it makes sense, though. I love it. I'm saying I it, love but it. But I actually put it up there with, you know, Michael B. Jordan in Black Panther. One of the great things about it is you sit there and you go, oh, this guy's logic is... His actions are fucked up, but his yeah. logic is sound. You, know? you understand his perspective. Absolutely. But like one of right. seven things that Donna Murphy dinner scene is accomplishing... Which just their fucking conversation about them meeting on the quad in college is so cute. And him just saying he'll never understand poetry. It's more complicated than fucking Him reading physics. the, what is, what's, how does the poem begin? Day after day, uh, he longed for, what, what, how does it go? Day, day, day by day, he gazed on her. It's, uh, right. it's, and then it's, it's, it's Peter Longfellow, trying to use that at Mary Jane. And she's like, what the right. fuck are you what? talking about? Like, I mean, just the classic Peter thing where he's like, I tried to cram a lot of emotional introspection into a couple of weeks. Yeah. Is, is this what you were looking for? And she's like, what? I'm engaged. What are you talking about? Like, you can't, I'm not just going to drop everything. Yeah. Like also you are, you're coming off as a dumb child right now. Coming off as a stunted child. But that thing where Peter's like asking him, like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And he's like, yeah, kid, I've thought about everything. I'm Dr. Otto Octavius. This is the most important fucking day of but my life. But he respects life. him. He respects that he's, he's thinking ahead. and He respects that he thinks through it. Right, like, right. But he's like, kid, I'm not going to be bettered by this, right? 
And then yeah, well, she says, American. you need to sleep soundly tonight. And he says, did Edison sleep before he turned on the light bulb? Did Marconi sleep before he turned on the radio? Did Beethoven sleep before he wrote the fifth? And Peter says, did Bernoulli sleep before he found the curves of the quickest descent? Yes. And it's an all rosy, I love this boy kind of thing. But Peter's the one guy who is so burdened with doubt in all aspects of his life that he can't help but think about the way in which things could go wrong. It is that little bit of hubris that Otto has that does him in. And that yeah. moment when he's fucking soliloquying where he's like, the kid was right. I, I got it wrong. I didn't think through it. That's immediately overcome by, it's impossible. This was my life's work. I have to be right. I have to prove to everyone I was right. Him as an arrogant scientist tracks for me in a way that, right, the Green Goblin, it's an Achilles heel of the character. I'm never going to totally buy that someone can go from point A of their starting point and then be driven so nuts that point B is now I wear this fucking outfit. Now I wear a Halloween. Yeah, I, it's I know, just the right. thing about Green Goblin. It's just that it's simple. Yeah. Like there's just no point B that ends with the logic dictates that I need to dress up in this fucking gear. I need to go buy this, get it fitted. <laughs> I got a little purse. Yeah, I sling right. it over this my shoulder. This motherfucker at some point a designed this cap. and went to whatever the fucking Marvel Universe's version of a seamstress is, which I think actually is a major thing in Daredevil. Actually, there's a few points where they have yeah. this guy, the tinkerer. But like he, there's so many points where this smart human being, Norman Osborn, could have gone like, is it this? Is it this color scheme? Is it pumpkin? Right. It's really going to be pumpkin right. bombs? I'll never totally buy that he is anything except nuts. And nuts is not that interesting. You learn this very early in your days in improv. It's like, if you're going to play somebody who's crazy, that's an unmoored reality that's sad more than anything else. Otto Octavius, I buy it. Tracks the whole way. I'm never going to buy that Norman Osborn didn't have 10 stopping points where he could have said at the very least, it doesn't need to be purple and green. You know, it's that simple. Agreed. And the fact that I think this movie actually gets to have its cake and eat it too, have the moment where the chip is broken, where he wakes up, where he sees Peter, puts it together. Molina's just like immaculate delivery of Peter Parker, brilliant but lazy, putting it all together in his head. And that final moment of like, I'm going to die a hero. You know, I think this was a big complaint at the time that, like, these movies always had to kill the villains off, that you couldn't let people continue to exist in the universe. But there's something noble about the fact that it's like, what life does Otto have to go back to now? Rosie's dead. He's made himself look like a lunatic. The last thing he wants to do is die on his terms safely. It has to be this. It's the reiteration of the experiment that he failed it the first time. And the second time, he finally, once he's, you know, snapped out of it, has the emotional realization of I've gone too far and there's only one thing for me to do, which is go down with the ship. Like, oh, And there's that weird haunting shot of the fully CGI Alfred Molina drifting down into the water. That's like one of the earliest examples of like photorealistic full human being for an extended shot like that that starts in a close up. There's something so painterly and like haunting about it. Uh, And then Peter uh crawls on a giant web that he has spun in five seconds he's good at it he's great at it but i love that like much like the perfectly placed your friendly neighborhood spider-man note they're just like every time he makes a web it is so beautifully art directed and it is accomplished in as little time as it needs to be done and i don't give a shit because it's comic book logic and all of spider-man's web should look like that um and and him just having to, like, sad sack be like, well, now you understand. I'm fucking Spider-Man. I can't do this. Go marry him. Go off. Have your nice life. She goes down. 
You just go, okay, here's a fucking another superhero movie. They're going to kick the can on this Peter MJ thing again. I don't know what they do, but he's clearly made his choice. It felt like this was like the sausage they were going to slice so thin for so many movies. And right. I remember being astounded that she leaves the wedding, that she shows up, and that she they has have a long scene. They have a long dialogue scene. A long scene. scene. Yeah. A yeah. long scene. The complete presence of like, I understand exactly what this is, and I want to go through this with you because I'd be happier struggling to be in a relationship with Spider-Man than in a life without you at all. And the thing that fucking makes this movie like five-star perfect masterpiece to me mm. is you have this scene that's so exciting. What do you say? And he says like, what's his line? He says like, oh God, yes. She says, go get him, Tiger. I, I, he I'm says, not oh sure. boy, yes. Or I think oh, is boy, what he yes. okay. he, he repeats uh -huh. the thing. Very, right. very, very... Uh, Silver Age Peter Parker, sure. They kiss. You talk about, like, why this movie transcended. I remember seeing this my sister, six years old at the time. When, when they lean in to kiss, she's, like, leaning forward into the screen, kissing the air. Like, for a six-year-old girl, it's like, this is fulfilling the notions of, like, fairy tale romance at this point, right? Sirens go off. Head turns away. He looks back to her, shamefully. This is the deal. I'm a package, you know, you're getting me and Spider-Man. How do you respond in this moment? Here's the first real test. Go get him, Tiger. You fucking work back in her most famous line in a different context. You know, it's, it's still a little melancholy. She's watching well, him leave. This is the thing, David. So he fucking swings out the window. She's happy, triumphant. We repeat the end fucking singing swinging sequence from the first Absolutely. movie. Fucking Elfman horns blaring helicopters looks fucking incredible you're like eh, fuh, fucking triumphant ending cut back to mary jane just standing in the window looking off actually now having to stand in this recognizing this is what my life is he swings off and i hope he comes back it's home. not the an fact enviable that this life. movie yeah. gets away with a fucking graduate ending is astounding to me and it's mm -hmm. like every time i see it it's like lump in throat like yeah. it, it is it's a really messy complicated ending and it doesn't feel like it's a messy complicated ending because of what it's teeing up for a future movie it's like the same thing i love about fucking toy story 2 where it's like the ending here is the acceptance of how difficult this is going to be um you and you could not make another movie and it, i'd be right. happy i mean i right. don't mind that they tried another movie i don't think three really works but like you know but like there are things about it that work but the fact that this ends on a close-up of her face is the thing for me that like differentiates raimi from almost everyone else who makes superhero movies yeah i mean obviously the first movie ends on a down note this ends yeah. on an up note it's an up note you know he he's doing well but still mixing that spider-man thing it's kind of a down note and the third one also ends on a down note. he ends all three well, the third film ends on an incredibly strange, MJ. bittersweet note, which I love. Yeah. Best, yeah. One of the best things about it. You know, there's so much with Spider-Man in general, and especially in this one, so much of it is him going, I'm ruining my life and I don't want to take down everybody else with me. Yeah. And the happy ending is she effectively says, like, I'm into it. Take my life down with you. Take me it's down. It's not the happiest right. ending in the world, but no. it is kind. He has someone who's in it with him willingly. That's the that's the victory. He there's acceptance, uh, and that's good. Like, but he just you know, Raimi has but, to remind yeah. you at the very end that there is a cost to that. Like he's not going to let you walk out focusing on the uplift of she's in. Right, and of course, um, twinned with this is like we have Harry talking to Norman in the mirror, so we know Harry 
is right. finally being put on the path to villainy over there. Like there's 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 things hanging over the movie. It is obviously aware that there'll be another one, mm-hmm. but there doesn't have to be. Uh, you know, like and and it would totally work. And this movie weirdly does basically stand alone, even though it's the middle part of a trilogy, which everyone always says. Oh well, that's the one where yeah, of course it can't really have a beginning and ending, but you know you got to forgive that. And I'm like, well, this movie pulls that off. This movie absolutely has a beginning and ending. Yeah, ending of the episode. We love an ending. We do love an ending of the episode. But we got to play the thing, box office game. We will play the box office game. Okay. Did we say enough about the sp- subway sequence just because it's so good? I guess we did. Yeah. I guess we kind of got that all. I think we we did, did I mean, it. No, we did great. I mean, I, I love it. To be listen, this episode right. has it's, it's to come to out in a few days. So, like four hours. This episode's being released in four hours. So let's not so relitigate. That's a good point. That's a good point. We yeah. we're, we can move on. And we're about to hit three hours, and that's fine. Yeah. AJ uh, McKeon is going to have to use the fucking Doctor Octopus arms to edit this episode at rapid speed. I'll just say that subway scene. I don't think a movie has ever nailed a moment that makes you go. That's what it really would be like if a regular person turned into a superhero. Like what movie scene has ever nailed it harder than that subway scene of just, this would not be easy. It would not be fun. It would fuck your whole life up and you'd be barely surviving the whole time, but you would, and people would appreciate you for it. What has ever nailed that harder? No, nothing. I, the other thing I think that sequence nails so hard, and the first movie does a really good job with it, and it was sort of the special sauce of what Raimi was able to execute, but it, that whole sequence heightens it to a different level is just the fucking poses he gets out of it. Yeah. Like, there's that moment where, where Spider-Man jumps onto the pole, and he's sort of, like, side-swinging from the pole. Do you know what I'm talking about? And it's yep. just always these perfect sort of acrobatic classic Spider-Man body contortions. Mm-hmm. That moment when McFarlane. he spins at just the right angle to be able to slide through the slats of the bridge, the walkway from the subway station. Like, all that shit's just so I mean, all this good. stuff in the action sequence where, yeah, where he, exactly what you're talking about. Sliding um, on the street, holding on to the train with the, the fucking trash can lids. It's just all rules. It fucking rules. This movie rules. It's for cool kids. Spider-Man's my best friend. It's also... The reaction of those New Yorkers on that train is so New York, so meaningful in the years mm-hmm. after 9-11, but also just in the, maybe more than any other scene I can think of in a, a superhero movie where they allow the perspective of real people to just go like, oh, there's a superhero among us. And that's a pure thing. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. And yeah, um, it's also, yeah, look, a guy. this is maybe the last point I want to make before we play the box office game. Yeah. But is this thing... I, I think a benefit to making Spider-Man movies that take place siloed off from the rest of the Marvel universe is you are able to have Spider-Man sort of truly represent the moral balance of a universe. Yeah, There's something true. when he's the one guy, you know? Yeah. And when the citizens of the city sort of reflect themselves in him and he's just this one sort of bizarre idea of why would anyone do this? Who is this person? Do we demand too much of them, you know? I would actually argue that, you know, if you're thinking about characters where they represent a heroic ideal, it's probably Spider-Man in this and Luke Skywalker before they fucking made them all complicated and fucked up. Okay, so the box office game. This movie comes out 4th of July weekend, 2004. Thank you. Uh, It opened to $152 million. It was very successful. Uh, That's over the four-day or five-day or whatever. I mean, everyone assumes this will be the highest grossing film of the year. And the surprise is that Passion of the Christ is this bizarre out of nowhere phenomenon. 
and then Shrek 2 Shrek wildly 2. overperforms. This is right, still a right. huge, huge hit, but those two movies, yeah, weirdly. Worldwide, weird. actually, Azkaban beats Spider-Man and not Passion of the Christ. Passion That's of the Christ wild. Yeah, yeah. But Spider-Man Azkaban does actually, a lot more third, domestically. Third I know Azkaban yeah. underperforms domestically. Okay, it anyway. Does. Um, so it's number one of the box office. Number two, Griffin is the most successful documentary. What, what did it open ever made. to? Give me the three day. Give I me told the five you, one hundred and fifty two. Thank you. That's is that three or five? five? No, it's the five day or whatever it is. Okay, know, so the, the holiday was, weekend. Yeah, the sure. three day was eighty eight. Okay, but you know. yeah. Uh, number two, the most successful documentary of all time. Uh, let me guess. It is uh, Fahrenheit nine eleven. I was going to make a joke answer. I have COVID. I don't have the energy to make joke answers anymore. Yeah, we've also been podcasting three hours. Uh, it's yeah. Fahrenheit nine eleven. Michael yeah. Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11, which made $221 million worldwide. It's a barely a film. It's absolutely terrible, in my opinion. Uh, and yet, you kind of have to admire it as like weird, right, 2004 propaganda. Number three at the box office is a comedy, um, sort of notoriously so good it's bad. So bad it's good. It's a so uh, very high bad concept. it's, oh, 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 it's white chicks. It's white chicks. Sean and Marlon Wayans chicks. are white chicks. I remember because I went to see White Chicks when Fahrenheit 9-11 was sold out. I knew they came out the same weekend. Um, yes. Uh, White Chicks. I saw it in 2004. I was stoned. Which is a crazy, crazier movie? White, White Chicks or Little Man? Which one's more nuts? I think Little Man's more nuts. Little Man is more nuts. White Chicks has some sort of a point to make. I don't know that Little Man does. I saw Little no, Man. Little I was Man on a Hawaiian no vacation, and my parents were dismayed that I went and saw Little Man on opening day in Hawaii. They were like, we're in Hawaii. It's like a once-in-a-lifetime trip. I'm sort of disappointed they didn't like complete that trilogy of... Of bizarre, like, you'll just never like, believe the Wayans look like this, right? Yes, right. Yeah. Well, they never did. Um, I guess because they ran out of swings. They, they're <laughs> like not they dead. I don't think they're not dead. All right, number five at the box. Oh, sorry. Number four at the box office is another comedy, a big hit comedy of the year uh, that's kind of in the Anchorman zone, but is maybe not quite as funny, but was similarly, you know, random and uh, influential. 2004, random comedy, influential. Anchorman comes out after this. I think Anchorman comes out the following weekend. It comes and out this summer. May, yeah. I, may I hazard a guess? Even though I know this is not my... Yep. Please. We're not talking wedding crashes, are we? Not no, talking about wedding crashes. Summer. That's the next year, yeah. Uh, but you've got the star. I'm going to... Oh, it's Dodgeball? Yeah. Yeah, big Dodgeball. hit. Dodgeball. David and I were talking the other day about how, like, Spider-Man is arguably the cultural movie of 2002, like the defining movie. And even though Spider-Man 2 is better, we were like, what is the culturally defining movie of 2004? And we landed on Anchorman feels like the answer. Like, Anchorman feels like the most impactful cultural object released that's to theaters. That's the lo longest tale. Longest tale. Right? It's a, that's, and, like, legendary comedy. Like, yes. Right. Yeah, like, legendary film, but, like, in terms of every, the ripple effects of oh, everything. Oh, yeah. Does. Between what it does as a film, between the way it launches Steve Carell more than he'd been launched at that point in particular. Launches everybody. Yeah. Yes, I uh, agree with that. Number five of the box office is a film we've covered on this podcast from a great auteur. It's a comedy. It's not entirely successful. It's a comedy from a great auteur that is not entirely successful. Did they mostly make comedies? Is it no. the film The Terminal? It's The Terminal. Jesus, you're good at this. Thank yes. you. Some others in the top COVID. 10. I forgot The Terminal was summer. but Got it was. COVID. Did a perfect game, a box office game yesterday, despite Congrats. having COVID. Uh, the Notebook. 
is chugging along. It's going to have its big sort of, you know, word of mouth run. You got Azkaban in there. You got Shrek 2 in there. You have Garfield the movie. Uh-huh. Uh, you have two brothers. Wait, what is that? Two brothers is fucking Guy Pierce and a kid, Freddie Highmore and a lion or a, oh, a leopard Jesus. or something. Tigers, tigers, tigers. Tigers. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And you got the Stepford Wives, the remake by Frank Oz. Yeah, let's do Oz. Yeah, let's do it. Oz the Great and Powerful. Frank um, Oz the Great and Powerful. Exactly. Yeah. That's the box office game. Spider-Man 2 is a big hit and thus guarantees a third film. Yes. Which, uh, once again, has to be made as quickly as possible which leads to lots of problems, even more than this one. Yeah, he somehow is given, I mean, we'll talk about it in the next episode, but he somehow is given more time but less freedom and is under greater stress. More villains, uh, too. And more villains, well, more excess in that regard. Everything's kind of a big old mess, but it is a fascinating bounce. And also this, is a, this is a weird example of a movie where there was all this pressure on it, and yet still somehow, I think because everyone was so astonished by how well Spider-Man had worked, they kind of went, it's up to you, Sam. Like, um, as much yep. as you hear about all these plates spinning at the same time and all these contrasting sort of developmenting, uh, developmental ideas and everything, it does feel like they kept on just deferring to the guy and going, what is this movie about? And he had such a clear vision of what Peter's internal struggle was, and he made a fucking masterpiece. And he I did. don't know if anyone's ever going to be given this kind of trust and freedom to be able to... I don't know. Probably not. It's crazy. Remember, yeah. remember when we used to do part one and part two episodes, or I guess we only did it once on Titanic? We did it once. I feel I like know, maybe we were... this... This is making me sort of think that we could potentially try and break it down. It might be helpful. Let's... Let's or maybe do or a, we could do shorter episodes just in that general, could that, kind of that also could yeah, be a right. thing. That'd be nice. Yeah. Let's maybe make this a four-part episode and no. take the next four weeks off. I have COVID. Um, and that's it. And Griffin, take us out, and I'm going to go check on my baby. I just want to thank you for having me before you go, and I'll see you again in 2026. I love you, Geth. Wait, 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 Chris, what, number, what year did you just say? Look, we love you, We love you, Geth. You were not banned from the show. You were not shadow banned from the show. And you calling out that you are the man who gifted the show with Kit Fisto and the Grievous rant and all that shit. I do, I do think you are, you are an essential part of the building blocks of this show. I think that episode sort of established the, the tone that would change as we would transition out of the Star Wars apps into more general things. And I think I, when people ask me for like recommendations of how to get hey, into the show, we don't need to do I this. Do always say, we don't need to do this. Pound, I think that is the funniest episode we've ever played. We don't out. need to do this. We don't I need think to that's do true. this. I've said my piece. I've apologized to the people who are offended and we all have moved on and I haven't tried to shoehorn Star Wars into any of this. You never brought it no. up again and I appreciate no. that. You're a good friend. No. You're, you've been a good friend to me and a good friend to the show. And it's oh, always listen, I've done my best. And so I always feel lucky to be here and I thank you for having me. I'm surprised David was really strict about steering it back away from Star Wars, huh? You know, it, it, it being a parent's really changed him. I think the difference is that you view this as a way to, like, step away from parental obligations. And for him, he's like, this is another fucking kid I gotta Listen, take care of. Griffin, though, Book of Boba Fett. Yeah. Way better than the initial backlash against it, right? Agreed. I think it's like pretty good. I think it's, I, 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 our friend Nick Weiger put it really well. He was like, it's boring, but it's like the good kind of boring. Well, it's also like if Mandalorian was Boba Fett and Boba Fett was the Mandalorian characters wise, we'd all have no yeah. problem. It's just that they've consistently backed themselves into a corner where Boba Fett's the biggest badass anyone's ever heard of. And we've yet to see it. Well, I just think that I think it's impossible. I think 
trying to open that box, to open the book, if you will, was a fool's errand. I think there is no way you could ever actually fulfill what Boba Fett is in everyone's mind. You could try to do the show that is, let's fulfill the promise of him being the biggest badass, and it would never live up to it. So they swerved in the opposite direction and had this, they they decided to make the show that is, what if Boba Fett tries to go in the straight and narrow and getting in that pits really changed him? And he wants to be a decent guy. And I think that disappointed a lot of people, but I just think like, I, I kind of think that makes sense. I don't think they ever should have done it. I think they just should have done a third See, season of Mandalorian. I think the show gets immediately better when Mando re-enters the show. I feel like if they had said, if they had announced like this is going to be a, a spinoff of The Mandalorian, everyone would have been yeah. mad and not watched it. But how yeah. can you, you can't you just say Boba Fett's going to be a spinoff of Jesus The Mandalorian. Christ almighty. Right. right. We got caught. Is this, never is this, caught. Is this part never, of the episode? Never should have gone and checked on Fuck, your kid, David. Caught. You never should have done it. Wow, yeah, how could I? I just think, yes, I think they should have just done a proper third season of Mandalorian where Boba Fett was like a co-star rather than David, why are you putting your head in your hands? Wait, hold on, David, are you okay? Put your head in your hands, are you okay? David's got his daughter crying in one room, I'm in the other room, I got COVID, I'm crying, he's (laughs) running back and forth with different bottles. I'm staying with David, by the way. I showed up on his doorstep and said, I got COVID. are you really staying with David? No, 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 I'm not. not. Go to your friend's... Uh, you go to get COVID, go to hang out with your friend who has a child. Are you insane? I think at the cartoon show in Blank Check, the animated series, we would heighten my our dynamic to that. I think I would be that much of a demon, a pox on David's life. Look, I'm happy we did this episode. I'm Ben's happy got it's, a sandwich. I'm happy it's in the can. Oh, you got Anthony and Sons? Hell yeah. I'm Good excited job, to go buddy. back to sleep, eat soup. I've been chugging just from a straight, like, fucking plastic jug of Tropicana hey, this entire hey, episode. Hey, I wish I ate Look, lunch before vitamins. this episode. Geth, me gotta, too. I'm, me too. I'm, I'm yeah. going to make some soup. I'm Geth, so do you have anything to you want to plug? This. Um, what would I like to plug? I'm out on the road. I'm, I've got a new hour that I'm really psyched about. I'm going all over the U.S. And then in August, I'm going to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival with it for the whole month. Um, cool. Beautiful Anonymous going strong. New Jersey is the world going strong. Cool. And uh, yeah, just think you'll love Edinburgh. You'll I, love I went it's in 2016. Place. It's a great, great place, great festival, great town. And uh, yeah, super psyched, super psyched to be here and be a part of this. And uh, thank you all so you'll much. You'll be back and, soon, Chris. Yeah. You'll be back so soon. Uh, maybe soon. I'll just need, you know, maybe between now and when you see me again, I'll just inexplicably go live on a weird island and turn bitter and burn all the books that are... The- okay, thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social I'll media fin- and helping to produce I'll the show. The AJ later. McKee and Alex Barron for our editing. Pat Reynolds and Joe Bowen for our artwork. Lane Montgomery and the Great American Novel for our theme song. You can go to patreon.com slash blank check for blank I actually visited features. the island in, in Ireland or like saw the cliffs and stuff it's gorgeous don't don't encourage me. all right you're right uh, no, franchise commentaries hashtag not all Batman the bonus episode on some shit I'm forgetting uh, a live show uh, the, you, we're fucking putting out the live show episode the old dogs episode uh, go to blank check pod for links to all sorts of other nerdy shit tune in next week for Spider-Man 3 with Jamel Bowie one of the smartest people on the planet delivering his long promised defense of Spider-Man 3 is good actually uh, and as always I have COVID I, I want to go back to sleep and I feel so bad smell you later there's a, there's a terrible trend too also of me getting sick just in time for some of the episodes I'm most eager to do in the history of this show. What are you, which else do you think? I puked during me? Starship Troopers. You did. Classic, classic moment from you.
Right. I was incredibly sick during uh, Mad Max Fury Road, which ended up being our last oh, in person. Right. It was my. Uh, if you wanted your fan base to hate me, you should have brought me on for Fury Road. Uh, well, fuck. Uh, we're not even we're not even dipping. Our we're not even that. talking no, about no, that. Thank you. We're wow, not talking. Really? It's not quite. You don't want to talk about how we might need to pay some attention to substance over style at some point if we're no, all no, going to no, fucking no, collectively no, no, get on our knees and worship this movie like fucking early Christians willing to be beheaded. Not a conversation. Ben just silently nodding his head. Okay, I guess I will, I'll write another letter then and apologize for that. Yeah, <laughs> you will. When you guys have me back on in seven years.